You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to the Moe Gamer podcast. I'm Pete Davison of moegamer.net and I've had a really shitty couple of weeks. Uh, so this is going to be a nice, happy podcast to try and take all the pain away um i am joined by my good friend chris kasky as usual how are you doing chris i'm okay just a little tired so yeah the uh, the time change the daylight savings in the states really whooping my buns this week yeah it happens hasn't been too bad here i think but uh as, as i discussed to you just before we started recording here that ours is a slightly different time to yours it does mean that um it's it's reasonably light in the morning when i go up uh, when I get up and go to work, but uh, it is dark by the time I finish work in the afternoon now. So yeah, driving home in the pitch black after just having been trapped inside in the office all day is the most miserable thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's worse when you have to do in the dark in both directions. Though, which when I used to work in schools was uh, what I what I had oh, to deal with. But it's uh, brutal. Yeah, that's that's extra depressing. It's just like you just don't feel like you've seen any daylight at all. All right, so we have a lot of news to talk about today. Um, do you want to start with some Smash Brothers talk? Yeah, let's talk about Smash Brothers a little bit. Sure. So, um, got to remind myself what happened. It was actually a little while ago all this was announced, though, wasn't it? So, there was a, a substantial uh, Nintendo presentation on what we can expect from Smash Brothers Ultimate. So, we had the last few characters announced, uh, which was Incineroar and. Ken. Was it? Ken. That's right. Yeah, Incineroar and Ken. Um, so we now have the complete roster, although they have also announced that they're going to be doing five DLC characters as well, which was a bit of a, a surprise, actually, because uh, although Nintendo have done some DLC for Smash and Mario Kart and stuff recently, I, I kind of thought the whole point of Smash Ultimate was like, yeah, this is this is the only Smash you'll ever need, and it's complete and everything. But Yeah, I'm uh, none too pleased, as you can imagine. Yeah, well... I mean, I guess it depends on on who the characters are. Um, according to Sakurai, they already know who the new characters are going to be, but they haven't done any work on them yet. So, it's it's not a case of them being cut out of the game for DLC. It's sure. So, uh, which uh, is more than can be said for some developers I could name today. But um, yeah, Nintendo have apparently sort of had the the final pick on uh, who's who's getting in there. So we're probably not going to get any of the more outlandish suggestions I've heard <laughs> over the last few months. Yeah. But, uh, like so some of the some of the supposed leaks we heard, I just, I just wonder how or why anyone would have believed those. It's like, why why why, why would we have the Grinch in Smash? Bros. <laughs> Is that really something people <laughs> yeah. are batting around? Yeah, like the like the the big leak from a few weeks back that everyone was absolutely losing their shit over. One of the characters, and it was the fucking Grinch. It was no. <laughs> no, I did. I did. <laughs> I did dare to dream um, that there was a possibility for Gino still. Like, every yeah. time someone says that, my heart opens up a little bit. But I know it's never going to happen. <laughs> well, there's still those five DLC characters. So there might be someone uh, on Nintendo who's on your side, but uh, probably not. <laughs> well, um, yeah. So, the other the other stuff that was announced in there was uh, we got a bit more information about the single-player offering. So, there seems to be several components to this. So, there's the... Uh, the World of Light mode, which is, um, they've said it's, yeah, I mean, it's got a story set up, but they've said it's very much focused on sort of mechanics and uh, different challenges rather than being a narrative-based thing. 
Um, and what it looks like from what they showed off is you have a world map, uh, you wander around, you get into battles under various circumstances and you gradually unlock characters over the course of that. So the setup seems to be that sort of everyone has been turned into spirits and Kirby has to save the day from the look of things, which is adorable. Yeah, it's cute. It's got like a world map and stuff. It's cute. I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, obviously um, everyone's pissed for some reason about it, but <laughs> but like it looks like it looks like fun. I don't know. Yeah. Um. Alongside that, and I, I assume that the two are going to sort of interlink somehow. Is this uh, the system called Spirits, uh, which is uh, a means of Nintendo cramming in a bunch more characters that aren't fully playable ones. And these are sort of collectible, almost collectible cards, like in a gacha game, almost. So they have. It's replacing buddies. the trophies. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're they're basically trophies, but they have more sort of practical applications. So you can actually equip them, and they provide boosts and very special abilities. And they have like a a triangle of what's strong against what, and all sorts. And it's really cool to see some of the characters that they're acknowledging in there. So um, you, you're getting some like classic Nintendo characters in there, but then you're also getting relative obscurities, like the characters from uh, Project Zero, Fatal Frame. You're getting some side characters from Metal Gear Solid. Shantae's in there. I think Shovel Knight's in there as well. Um, yeah, so... And the metagame for that appears to be collecting them, fusing them, leveling them up. Um, and yeah, yeah, so I'm looks, done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Yeah, it looks potentially life-destroying, so I'm looking forward to investigating that. And uh, yeah, it's um, kind of taking the almost the Hyrule Warriors approach, where it's providing you with so much content that potentially, if you don't mind playing nothing but Smash Brothers for the rest of your life, you could probably play Smash Brothers for the rest of your life. But uh, yeah, looking forward yeah. to that, definitely. It's going to be good. Mm. And it's not long away now, is it? It's probably it's a month. It's about a month, isn't it? Yeah. So. I believe the 7th, isn't it? December something 7th? like that yeah I think so yeah well yeah not long so I'm sure we'll have uh, things to say about that when it finally releases mm -hmm. okay so aside from that what were some of the stories you wanted to bring up this time around uh just like a like a release date blast over mm. the past um so for those of you who like me enjoy a good monster hunter style game we finally have a western release date for uh Namco Band uh, Bandai Namco's uh <laughs> God Eater 3, uh, cool. so February of next year, February 8th. Um, that was really all I had to be for, uh, for Soul Calibur 6. Yep. Can we just talk about how cool that is? That's very cool. Um, you know, there's always been a history of unique guest characters for Soul Calibur, and uh, I think people were happy enough with Geralt from The Witcher being mm -hmm. the guest character for six this time around so i don't think anyone was expecting uh, a licensed square enix character to come out of nowhere let alone it be 2b um yeah. so this is most exciting um she looks great it's like a perfect fit uh -huh. like if you didn't know who 2b was and you watched the footage you would just assume she belonged in the game it's great yeah. have you seen her palette swap yes, yes everyone is everyone is losing their shit over her palette swap because uh well yeah, it's very nice. Because isn't, isn't it just like exact opposite? Isn't it like white dress, black hair? Or? Yeah, pretty much. So she's, so she's got black hair and a white dress, and she's also got tanned skin as well. So, Oh, okay. Yeah, pushes a lot of people's buttons. So I predict there's going to be a lot of fan art of that uh, in, in a few weeks. Um, I will probably be making some of it. <laughs> Consider Excellent the buttons stuff. pushed. Excellent stuff. 
Um, a couple of release dates I've got, um, or, or release windows certainly. Dragon Quest Builders 2 is coming to the West in 2019. Huzzah! Excellent. So yeah, the first Dragon Quest Builders is really cool. I, I haven't actually played it through myself yet, but my, my wife played it all the way through, and anything that can drag her away from Final Fantasy XIV is uh, worthy of note. So. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's great. I mean, people who dismiss the builder, the first builders as merely being like a cash-in, you know, Minecraft cash-in, certainly didn't take the time to play it. Um, oh, it no. Really, it really yeah. fuses what's fun about... Minecraft with what's fun about a more directed JRPG style experience. It's it's really mm -hmm. the best of both worlds. Like it 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 eliminates the aimlessness of Minecraft and yep. actually has a story with set goals. But you're also still free to do what you like if you choose. It's kind of a great plus. I appreciate the third person viewpoint a lot more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's um, yeah, I I, I like the fact that it in some ways it almost plays like it's in. 2d in many ways so like when you when you make a building all you have to do is make the outside walls of it you don't have to put a roof on it and stuff which is all this sort of fiddly annoying stuff you have to do in minecraft mm -hmm. um so you so say in in dragon quest builders you just sort of build the outline the blueprint of the building and put stuff in it and then you've got a a functional town gradually building up and yeah i, I really like that aspect of it and but you've got all the exploration and the combat and the building yourself up thing in there as well so yeah looking forward to seeing the new one and i i will get around to playing the first one at some point yeah me too the uh, second one's got multiplayer i believe hasn't it yes i believe so mm. yeah yeah i don't know about you but i'll be focusing on the switch for sure for two i didn't yes. re i didn't rebuy the first one for the switch because if i rebought every game that comes out later for the switch that i initially bought for the ps4 i'd never buy any new games i would just be re <laughs> i would just be rebuying switch ports for the rest yeah. of my yeah same but uh, but I'll definitely be getting the Switch version for two because it's just such a perfect fit. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That'll be a good uh, a good game for lunchtime at work. Certainly. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, another release date. Uh, apparently, we are getting the Sega Ages version of Fantasy Star One on November the fifteenth, which is not long after this episode will release. So, uh, yeah, watch out for that. So. Um, Rather than being sort of like a, a full-on complete remake of Fantasy Star, like some of the previous Sega Ages thing, this is sort of basically a, a nice version of the original Master System version. But they've added things like uh, auto-mapping and things in there as well, which is uh, a, a big benefit to the original Fantasy Star, which for those unfamiliar was... Um, the majority of it was first-person dungeon crawling with no map in the original. So, yeah, I'd be quite happy to revisit that. I actually really enjoyed the first Fantasy Star, although it is mm -hmm. pretty pretty simple. But um, yeah, it is one I have have some fond memories of. So yeah, it's, it's a great game. Yeah. Uh, what else we got? Uh, I noted down something about a game called The Demon Crystal heading to Nintendo Switch. I can't remember exactly why I made a note of this, but yeah, oh, yeah I don't so, know anything yes. about this. Yeah, here we are. So I'm I'm just re reading reading the story that RPG site posted on it. So. Uh, this was a side-scrolling action RPG that was originally published on a series of Japanese uh, PC platforms. So things like the MSX, PC88, and Sharp X1. And they are sort of polishing it up and releasing it for Switch, which is exciting. Um, as it's a, a game that would have been both Japan-exclusive Japan and pretty obscure by being on those computer platforms. So mm -hmm. it would be uh, an opportunity to discover something brand new so not a lot of details on that at the moment but that is uh, on the way apparently yeah well i'm on board with this art 
right, <laughs> right yeah. off the bat this is cute as cute as the business yeah, yeah that's that's sort of proper sort of 80s japanese console game cover art isn't it for that yeah yeah very I nice indeed uh yeah what else what else would you like to bring up uh i'll talk about the cool thing that came out of <laughs> the the blizzard event are we, which are we is... avoiding are we avoiding the other thing yeah, I don't feel like talking about the other thing. <laughs> no, no. Um, but I will talk about uh, Warcraft Three Reforged, which is really cool. So they're just they're doing a full remaster of Warcraft Three, um, mm-hmm. and and its expansion, which is great yeah. because um, if like me, um, your favorite part of Blizzard games is just going on YouTube and watching the cinematics, that <laughs> <laughs> they're they're also redoing all all the cinematics. Um, oh really? Wow. Which is great, like with you know with the new with the newest tech, um, which is cool. Um, I'm the kind of guy who enjoys reading the Warcraft novels more than playing the games because I'm not really an yeah. RTS guy. Yeah, but I same. love. But as someone who loves a, a more cartoony style, like I'm, I'm, I love the world of Warcraft. You know, I love the the mm-hmm. lore, the lore and the characters and and the art. So this is neat. It'll be an opportunity to revisit this game. Um, Warcraft 3 is a really cool game because it had, um, you know, it introduced kind of a little bit of character building and RPG elements into the yeah. MMO structure. So it was kind of a benchmark. Um, you know, Warcraft 3 provided originally the kind of base model that the giant MOBA genre grew out of by yeah. having by having that RPG style character development embedded in the RTS structure. Um, yeah. that, that allowed MOBAs to exist. The, the original Dota was a mod, was a mod for Warcraft 3. Yeah. So it's kind of a tremendous game. Yeah, it's um, it's it, it's one of those games that I I respect a lot, but I I don't feel like I'm good enough to completely appreciate playing it. But I do respect it, and I I've always liked sort of Blizzard's level of polish that they put into their products, particularly mm-hmm. from that sort of era as well. And oh, yeah. kind of su- kind of surprises me that they're redoing the the cutscenes because the the cutscenes were already pretty stunning. So to see what they uh, what they might have up their sleeves with uh, with new new tech is uh, yeah something to wonder. Yeah, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how that uh, how that turns out. Mm. I believe the plan for them as well is to make it cross compatible with the old version as well. So people who still have the old version will be able to play multiplayer with the new version, which is oh, that's cool. really neat. Um, I wonder how they'll pull that off. Yeah, so if uh, yeah, if if they do actually follow through with that, that will be a great way of bringing some new people into the community and also um, sort of keeping the people who are still playing the old version happy as well. Yeah. Blizzard, one thing Blizzard has actually been really good at is continuing to support their old games. So oh, things yeah. Like, things like Diablo 2 and um, Warcraft 3 have been continually getting support and updates to make them run on yeah. modern systems just because they know they've got so much staying power for their multiplayer and that sort of thing. And that's just, that, that's a really admirable thing to do, I think. Yeah, just the fact that you can load up Battle.net right now and go buy StarCraft, you know, to go buy yeah. the original StarCraft, Warcraft three um and diablo 2 is incredible <laughs> like i i was just kind of marveling at that the other day when i mm. went to you know i went I, every now and then i'll log into BattleNet to make sure overwatch is up to date and then not play it but uh, <laughs> and i was just kind of thinking about how neat it was that if i wanted to i could download a, a slightly modernized and current operating system compatible version of diablo 2 if i wanted like yeah who yeah. else really respects their history like that <laughs> All right. 
slightly game related, um, Castlevania 3. Uh, Castlevania, the Netflix series, has now been confirmed for a third season. I don't yep. think this will surprise anyone, given the extreme level of support season two has gotten. Um, you know, uh, people talking to me and listening to the podcast will know that uh, animation and video games are kind of on even keel for me. Um, I'm kind of a tremendous fan of both. And... Uh, I, Season 2, Episode 7 of Castlevania might be my favorite piece of animation in my entire life. Hmm. Uh, it's literally the thing I've been waiting for since I was, like, four years old. Yeah. I can't even, like, I will I will spoil nothing, but this needs to be watched by anyone who has ever loved Castlevania ever. It's perfect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I still I still need to watch this, but yeah, the the praise has been pretty universal for it. So, I'm uh, I'm glad it's getting success, and I'm glad they're getting the opportunity to make some more of it. Certainly. So, there's also rumors now that the studio has been given Zelda. Oh yes, that will be interesting because uh, yeah, because I'm sure I'm sure that people will have some very strong opinions on how they should handle that. <laughs> I mean, I just. With, with regard to things like Link and stuff like that. And yeah, but, doesn't really uh, talk. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, all I know is a year ago, if someone had told me that an animation studio had been given the Zelda license, and this is all speculative still, I don't know if this is 100% true, but I would have been like, well, that's going to be stupid. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I cannot express the degree to which the Castlevania franchise has been handled with respect. Yeah. Yeah. by these people well like, the, the the reaction you're describing there is exactly how people responded to the original announcement of the castlevania thing it's like oh, castlevania oh animation. That's, yeah that's gonna suck but uh it didn't so no i mean we're we're, <laughs> we're talking we're talking like if you haven't watched it it's like a granular level of fan support so like part of the story is that the castle uh, dracula can move the castle Right, like magically, mm -hmm. like move move the castle wherever he wants, and that's like what makes getting Dracula so hard. He just like teleports it to other locations, and um, the magic artifact that he uses to move the castle is this is that like dodecahedron save point from Symphony of the Night. <laughs> it's Sweet. like just like it's like rotating on a plinth, and he just like stands there and like conjures at it, and <laughs> and, I, and I'm just like screaming like this, as soon as they. <laughs> There's also online, if you look, like, there's a whole website now that's dedicated to, like, breaking down, like, screenshot by screenshot, like, finding little granular tributes in it. And during the big fight scene in season, in episode seven, like, a wall gets blown up and someone has used, has, like, zoomed in, like, magnify, like, eight times and there's a pot roast there. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> like, where the brick breaks. <laughs> Yeah, I knew what you were going to say there before you said it, and yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yes, I must I watch mean, this. They care. This isn't a cash-in. It's just wonderful. Good stuff. All right, moving on. Uh, not a huge amount to say about this, but uh, Konosuba is getting a new game. Uh, it is going to be a dungeon crawler for PlayStation 4 and PlayStation Vita, developed by Intergram. Uh, I don't think I know that name. Uh, the game itself looks reasonably, uh, sort of like a reasonably generic dungeon crawler, but the, just the fact it's got the Konosuba cast in there will add a, uh, a lot of appeal to that, I'm sure. Uh, no word on whether or not that's going to be coming west or anything like that, but um, 
yeah, it has been announced now for Japanese release. There's been one previous game, I think, that was a, a visual novel uh, that didn't come west, so I, I don't know anything about that at all, so I just know it exists. So, But it'd be nice to see that come over here. A uh, couple of stories about uh, mobile games. Uh, first one, uh, Dragalia Lost has apparently been doing quite well uh, since it launched on September the 27th. Uh, so they've been uh, giving out some gifts to players so if you've been playing that and you maybe haven't logged in for a while it's well worth uh, popping in there because they'll give you some freebies so they'll give you 50,000 mana, 100,000 rupees and 30 gold crystals which is very useful for levelling your characters especially if you want to get into the raid events and such like um, on a slightly less positive note for the Japanese mobile gaming industry um, According to some analysts, the, the the sort of mobile games gacha game market is uh, starting to wither a little bit. Um, it sounds as if um, sort of the just sort of the bubbles burst a bit. I think there's just so many of them out there now that it's it's getting very difficult for them to um, to be competitive, and also they're facing a significant amount of competition from China and Korea as well. Oh, so, sure. Uh, so, so China uh, in particular is starting to become a real heavy hitter in terms of, of free-to-play gaming and such like. Um, the thing we weren't going to mention about Blizzard, um, a lot of that is sort of um, led by the Chinese mobile gaming market and such like. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and China is a lot more willing to pay up for microtransactions and pay to win and that sort of thing. So it's a very different market to what we, we're sort of used to. So... I mean, we can get frustrated about that all we want, but we, if if it's sort of a cultural thing that they're happy to do that, there's unfortunately not a huge amount we can do about that. But um, it is interesting that this is starting to have an impact on um, the actual Japanese gacha game business. So um, a key quote here, I think, is that Japan's entire mobile game market as a whole is still growing, uh, but the share that goes to Japanese companies is falling, which is uh, which is interesting. So sort of the the market for the games is growing but it's it, 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 where the money is is going to different places so yeah we shall see where that goes um but um yuji nakamura on uh, on twitter who is uh, the one who posted this story for bloomberg he's a bloomberg tech reporter uh, he he noted that this is probably a timely lesson for western publishers who are obsessed with loot boxes that they shouldn't discount creativity so they shouldn't just rely on building a monetization strategy and then trying to build a game around it they should try and build a creative game first and then put, yeah. put some some good monetization in there that isn't obtrusive that doesn't kind of compromise that core um gaming experience i've always said that overwatch was a pretty good example of that like yeah, uh, you can like you can play Overwatch and enjoy it and never even engage with the loot boxes if you don't want to. It's 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 a structurally sound game with a track with an attractive visual design. Yeah, like um, you don't ever have to engage with the loot boxes. I mean, I, I sort of have mixed feelings about that because it, it does tease you a lot with the other skins and stuff. And so, so oh yeah, and, and, and some people will be susceptible to that, and they, they will they will sort of see uh, like the Halloween event or something like that and think, oh, I really want Halloween Mercy. I really want to pay up thirty quid for the the chance to maybe get her possibly maybe right right oh yeah um, i'm not saying it's not i'm not saying it's not there and it can't be a problematic but right, i'm saying right, that right. it's the existence of the loot boxes isn't integral to the functionality of the game yes so exactly. like you could take overwatch literally eliminate the loot boxes entirely mm -hmm. and what you'd still have is a fully playable game with an enjoyable structure that's well yeah. designed from the ground up yeah 
yeah, so it's not like something like Star Wars Battlefront 2 where the loot boxes were actually affecting game progression. So people, yes. were, people were pulling game-breakingly more powerful characters out of these loot boxes and getting the currency for that. So anyone who was willing to pay up more was going to have a better experience. They were going to get better results from it. So, yeah, that's not something you get in Overwatch. So Yes, I just wish it would all go away, to be honest. But uh, unfortunately, yes. we, seem, we seem to be stuck with it. Um, although one interesting thing that did come up of that is that um, recently um, the Kingdom Hearts mobile game, Kingdom Hearts Union Cross, I think you pronounce it, mm -hmm. um, that is going to be ending service in Belgium. Uh, and, oh, the, okay. and, the, and the reason for that is that uh, Belgium has actually passed some policies to do with loot boxes and gacha and that sort of thing. So, oh, okay. Uh, so after a certain point, yeah, these these games just they won't be allowed to run services in Belgium. And this is this is the first game that I've seen specifically announcing that it's going to have to shut down in that territory because of. Um, they describe it as as the present uncertain legal status of loot boxes under Belgian law. So I, I think the whole thing is still kind of under discussion at the moment. So they're probably just taking this as a preemptive measure. But I think we're probably going to see more and more games that are going to only be coming to specific territories. I mean, stuff like Dragalia Lost still isn't released in European territories officially. You have to download it through Kuap or something like that. So I think we're going to start seeing some of those games struggling a bit in some Western territories that are looking at ways to legislate on this sort of thing. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on. Uh, just a quick one. Another release date. The Ace Attorney Trilogy is coming out for PS4, Xbox One and Switch in Japan on February the 21st. And this is the original trilogy. That's right, right like yeah. The remake of the original. Yeah, so it's the, so it's the first three Phoenix Wright games. Um, so, and the PC version for Steam is coming around spring 2019, so that's coming out a little bit later. Uh, no specific information on the Western date yet, uh, but Capcom have said that that information is coming soon. So unsurprisingly, it is definitely coming West. Uh, we just don't quite know when yet. You'd think it probably wouldn't take much work for this because all the translations for this is already done. Um, and in fact, the um, the original Ace Attorney games, their Japanese releases, had full English script anyway. So mm. you could buy a Japanese copy of the DS versions of all of the Ace Attorney games and play them in English without a problem. So hopefully, oh, okay. hopefully there won't be too much of a delay because all the work's been done. I'm interested to check these out. I mean, I've always wanted to check the Ace Attorney series out. But um, it had just gotten to a point where it had been rolling for so long yeah. that I never, I never really even knew where to start, right? Because there's so many like spin-offs and sequels, and this is an Ace Attorney game, but it's a different attorney and a different crew, and like yeah. I don't, I don't know what to do. So, so, <laughs> so like this is cool. This is cool that we're getting an, an updated version of the original trilogy. It yeah. seems like the right jumping-on point for people who've always been curious. Yeah. Most of them do kind of kind of stand by themselves. They kind of got wise to that after a while and, and sort of made them very self-contained stories. Although mm -hmm. they they are also designed in such a way that if you have played all of them, you will start to make connections between the characters and what's going on and why it, things are this way and such like. Uh, but those first three games are very much designed as a trilogy. Uh, so it is it is the main character Phoenix Wright uh, coming from being a rookie lawyer in and developing his uh, his skills and experience at defending his clients over the course of these three games. So it's like I think fifteen cases altogether, might be slightly less than that, but um, 
yeah it's it's really interesting to see him grow as a character over the course of those and start interacting with other characters who become regulars there's various recurring characters as well so yeah it's, it's a really great series i mean if you are not into the sort of japanese adventure game style things which is heavy on the visual novel side of things um mm-hmm. yeah you may you may struggle a bit with them but they are definitely worth checking out for uh the artwork the character designs the story is really good the characterization is excellent so yeah if you can if you can get over the hump of sort of dealing with the way they play then yeah you'll have a good time i'm cool with that kind of game what i don't appreciate is like just like pure visual novels yeah yeah but like japanese adventure style games with with with, with, that are that are text heavy I'm, i'm okay with because there's still a lot of traditional gameplay elements problem solving and logical thinking in yes there yes make you know i can approach it like a puzzle game like a mystery yeah and I, so I so i do enjoy that um i do enjoy those types of games oh yeah so. yeah definitely worth checking out then so so watch out for those when they uh when they eventually head over here then okay a few more stories um there are apparently multiple falcom console games including a new ease coming out by september 2019 in japan uh, we already knew about the new ease game that was on the way uh, and that's sounding like it's going to be ease 9 rather than a remake of ease 5 which people had um uh, hoped for it might be. yeah i hope for hope yeah. for is the right word <laughs> <laughs> I, it is it is surprise news though how soon it's coming yes yeah like september mm. yeah so i th- I think falcom are doing pretty well at the moment from the sound of things i think they're, they're, their financial report came out recently and i think they they've had some very good results recently so i think they are they are keen to sort of capitalize on that there's uh, I, I know we've joked about the falcom fan base on here before but they also have a very very strong and passionate following in the west as well particularly for the mm-hmm. PC, pc releases and such like so this pc is a relatively new market for a lot of japanese developers to get involved with and falcom are very much leading the charge in that regard so they've had a lot of really good success stories with their pc releases with the ease games uh with the trail series um so yeah be uh be good to see that continue because uh, yeah, Falcon yeah. Falcon make great stuff. I need to you know I need to make the time to 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 actually play some more of their stuff because I I own a lot of it but uh, haven't got round to it. But the Trail series yeah. in particular is so huge. It's it's one that I I know I have to actually make some time for. Now as we've discussed prior, like I'm super excited for these PS4 ports of the Cold Steel games because mm-hmm. yes. I passed on those yes on the Vita. Although one one cool thing I will mention about that is that the the enhancements they are making for the PS4 games, Xseed have already patched into the PC version. Which, yes, which that's is neat. yeah, which is is great to see because I know a lot of people have been quite vocally critical of Xseed for not including the original Japanese voices in Trails of Cold Steel in particular. Uh, and now they now they've done it. Hopefully they will shut the fuck up for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> now now. <laughs> Oh dear! We have to be we have to be careful. <laughs> the possibility that Falcom's crazy fan base may also cross section into our fan base is pretty significant. <laughs> so we have to pretend to acknowledge that their complaints are valid. Okay, yes, your concerns are valid. However many times you put a dollar sign in XC's name, your concerns are perfectly valid. <laughs> anyway, well, yes, yeah, continue. I was just gonna say, I think with all, I mean, I won't go into it because that's a whole, could be a whole episode in and of itself. But I just, I don't think these people who complain about accessibility of uh, language tracks understand the technical and legal 
limitations yeah. associated yeah. with with vocal tracks. Yeah, like how a how much space they take up on the disc for compression and and putting together a, a game, right? I mean that's not it's not a huge deal for a PC version, obviously, because size isn't as much of an op, uh, as much of an obstacle as with a with a console game with mm-hmm. a physical print, but. The, the concern still remains, as well as licensing. I, you know, the, in, in XE's case, I know it's been the, the licensing cost they've always struggled with, so a lot of Japanese sure. voice actors, when they do work, they will specifically sign a contract that their work can only be distributed in Japan, and so actually licensing right. that out for localizations is very challenging in a lot of cases. So, And because a lot of the Falcom games that have come west are several years old, uh, it means that there's like a whole load of um, sort of legal wrangling that needs to be done because these games yeah. weren't originally developed with the West in mind, unlike, say, stuff like Idea Factory and Koei Tecmo does these days. Um, yeah, they, they, they have to sort of go back to those old contracts that were designed with the Japan-only release in mind and figure yeah. things out from there. So, Yeah, so the legal complications are tremendous, and I don't think, you know, it just... To me, when people get upset about this stuff, it demonstrates a tremendous lack of perspective mm-hmm. to, to not really understand what the limitations are and why it's such a difficult thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's great when we when we do get these things. That sometimes sometimes you just have to say, "Well, we've we've got what we've got. I can I can take it or leave it." Basically, and to be honest, I, I will usually choose to take it. Of course. Yes. Because you're an adult. <laughs> anyway. Um, let's move on. Uh, Final Fantasy 15 did a live stream. Oh, yes. Final Fantasy 15 did a live stream recently where they appear to cancel most of the DLC that's coming for it. <laughs> uh, so, um, Hajime Tabata has left Square Enix, um, and most of the remaining DLC for Final Fantasy 15 has been cancelled. So, the only surviving one is Episode Arden, uh, which is on the way. So, that means the. Uh, so there was going to be an Aranea one, a Luna Freya, and a Noctis episode. Uh, those have all yeah. been cancelled now. Um, and so we're getting episode Arden, and I think they are making a short animated movie as a prologue to the Arden episode as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that, um, yeah, that's what's going on. So it looks like Final Fantasy XV might finally be coming to an end. Also, they're spinning off the multiplayer, the comrades. Oh, yes. And and so comrades will no longer be a DLC just for fifteen. It's going to become its own game. Mm-hmm. So that's bizarro. I don't exactly understand the distinction there, but yeah, you're gonna have if 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 moving forward you want to play FF fifteen comrades, you have to buy it as a separate game. It's no longer a DLC for fifteen. Yeah, yeah, that's quite strange. But, uh, I mean, Com- Comrades is good fun. Uh, I just wonder how many how many people are going to jump on board with it who haven't already jumped on board with it. Well, yeah, I mean, my interest in it was as a fun thing to play as an ancillary to 15. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much I ca- would care about buying it as a separate thing. Like, you know, I was excited to give Comrades a try when one day I purchase whatever complete edition of 15 comes out. <laughs> yeah. Right? But if it's like you purchase complete edition of 15 and it's just 15 with all the patches and DLC episodes, but then Comrades, I would have to buy something separately. I probably just wouldn't buy Comrades yeah. then. Like, yeah, that makes sense. I was, in, I was interested in fiddling with it, but I don't know how interested I am in it as a separate purchase. Yeah. 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 So, um... Tabata's reason for his departure, he gave that he's he's got uh, he's got a project in mind 
uh, that he he wants to work on. He, he, he just sounds like he wants a clean break from 15, which, to be honest, is perfectly understandable at this point. Um, Do you buy it, though, really? I don't know. I mean... <laughs> After the other news, right, the news that immediately preceded the FF15 thing was the tremendous loss yes. that's, that Square Enix has posted, which they put squarely on the amount of money they spent developing HD high-end games. Yeah. Well, I, I, with, with Without return that is justified. Yeah. I think a lot of blame for that can be laid at the feet of Tomb Raider. Um, yeah, that's what you'd said. Because to, Tomb Raider is a game that just it just appeared... And then no one talked about it. So, like, there wasn't any marketing for it. There wasn't any sort of massive features on gaming sites about it. It just seemed to sort of slip out and die quietly. I, I haven't even heard of anyone actually playing it. And I think I think people are just kind of fed up of it at this point because mm. it's been three games now where Lara Croft is going to be become the Tomb Raider, and she still hasn't. So, <laughs> wait, there's a third one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought the one that just came out was the second one. No, 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 no. no. That just shows you where I am. No, no, no. No, we have Tomb Raider, we have uh, Shadow of the Tomb Raider, and then Rise of the Tomb Raider, or possibly the other way around. Yeah, no, there's three of them. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, well, that shows you how much I care about this franchise. (laughs) So, you see, there's the problem, and, like, yeah. So, I think think a lot of the blame can be laid at the feet of that because that obviously wasn't a cheap game to make because we've we've sort of we've sort of seen about the development of the the previous two and so on and the previous two have been reasonably successful to be fair but they've made yeah i remember reading a lot of positive press about about at least the first one i i remember thinking wow i I actually want to check this out Mm. this sounds like a really cool game yeah i think they've they've made a lot of really curious decisions with that one though like the, the second one they they made the xbox times exclusive for example and yeah, that, so that, I remember that. That annoyed a lot of people. Um, and like I say, this what this one just 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 kind of came out without any fanfare whatsoever. I didn't see any marketing from Square Enix. Didn't see anything from game sites about it. Didn't see anyone talking about it online. It was just weird. It was like the Phantom game. It was bizarre. I read I read a piece about it, and there seems to be a lot of disappointment surrounding it. Mm. Like the conclu- like the conclusion of it, and like the story, t- like the story beats they worked in with Lara, like, we're not sitting well with a lot of people. But I honestly thought I was reading a review of like an enhanced PS4 version of the second one. (laughs) I I didn't didn't realize I was reading a review for another one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are three of them. Oh, well. Well, that explains a lot of that. But yes, I I think you're probably right. I think 15 is probably um, hoovered up a lot of their money as well. So especially with the sort of continue updates and stuff that they've been doing to it. I mean, on the one hand, they didn't have to do that. On the other hand, sort of, uh, they got a lot of criticism for releasing quite unquote an unfinished game and so forth. So there wasn't really a good way for them to win in this regard. So... um, yeah, if it was his choice to make a clean break himself, then yeah, I think that was the right decision. If he was ousted out the door, I think that may have been the right decision as well. But it's probably a little bit of both, right? It's probably like, yeah, we're not gonna stop you. <laughs> like, 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 don't let the door hit you. <laughs> like one of the like one of those scenarios. Yeah. Um, but whatever. Yeah. So so he's starting his own business and he'll be working on whatever this new project is, which he seems pretty excited about. So um, yeah, those those of you who like his work, then keep an eye out for that. Um, and then episode Ardin will be out in March of next year. 
Um, I uh, I'm excited about the idea of Tabata working on an independent project personally. Mm. Yeah. Because I think as a developer, Tabata is a really interesting guy, and he has really cool ideas. Um, but I never really liked him involved in Final Fantasy. Yeah. Like I just I just didn't like his vision of Final Fantasy. Yeah. I, th- and, I think in some cases part of the problem he had as well is he was having to sort of build on other people's work as well rather than having to do yeah. something completely unique. So, yeah, it may well be that uh, that this is this is very much the right move for him. So, we shall see. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. You know, it's whenever cre- someone, whenever a creative person makes steps to free themselves and and kind of make something they want to make, it's always to me. A step in the right direction so we'll we'll see where it goes yeah definitely all right uh last thing i want to talk about is uh idea factory's uh recent press conference uh, where they announced uh, a bunch of new stuff um what a blast yeah so some good stuff on the way so death end request which we already knew was coming west uh now has a release date so that's coming on february the 19th of 2019 in north america and february the 22nd of 2019 in europe uh, so they've got a bunch of new trailers and stuff out for that now. So um, pop by and watch those and look at some screenshots and stuff. Um, lots of interesting things about that. Uh, so the other stuff they announced was uh, Dragon Star Varnir, uh, which is coming in spring of 2019 to PlayStation 4. Uh, God, that one sounds dark. Yeah. Have you been reading about this game? <laughs> yeah, so let's just read the description. So, taking place <laughs> in a world where witches are cursed to give birth to dragons, one man tasked with hunting them soon finds his own fate intertwined with his former enemies. Fight against dragons in turn-based mid-air combat using tears, transformations, and more to weaken them and devour their abilities. The fate of a group of witches is in your hands. Will you choose to save them or sacrifice them? Yeah, so, yeah, this uh, this sounds pretty dark. This sounds sort of the, the kind of thing I would expect from um, sort of a, a Japanese PC game, almost, with the with the, the kind of dark themes and the save them or sacrifice them. Uh, it, it actually reminds me slightly of the uh, Venus Blood Frontier thing we talked about a few weeks back. With the yeah, idea so, of- like, you have your camp, right, or whatever it is, your, like, school for witches or whatever is, like, your home base, mm-hmm. and, like, you're going you're gonna to get, like, there's, like, three cute, like, up and coming like young witches yeah. that are that are like in your charge to take care of and like there's a mechanic where like you're kind of like raising slash developing them by like feeding them like dragon blood or whatever yeah. right because like they but like they have to eat but it's almost like um like you have to like walk the fine line between like keeping them satisfied and keeping them alive yeah and like and like they will give you treats and items for like giving them the stuff but you also the whole time have to keep in mind that the more stuff you give them the possibility that the dragon egg that they harbor in them may hatch and if it hatches it kills it kills them and like you'll get a baller status item (laughs) when when the dragon hatches but then like that girl's dead yeah so like you kind of have to play that game between like is it worth it to get the items which are no doubt going to be powerful or like are you okay with like killing this adorable little witch girl mm. who's like in your charge? Like, yeah, yeah. So this is this is sounding cool. It's got some really nice artwork. Uh, the battle system sounds pretty interesting. It's got this sort of vertically oriented battle system they call it. So you have to bear in mind things like height and stuff like that as well. Uh, I like that. So um, yeah, it's it's very much based on the idea of aerial combat and dragons and and, and things. So that uh, that should be a cool one. So that's coming in uh, spring of next year. 
Uh, I love when Idea Factory gets weird with it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, some of their best stuff is where they they just decide well, to throw things at the wall and see what sticks. <laughs> Death and Request is weird as hell too. Yeah. Have you seen the combat in that? It's like billiards. Yeah. <laughs> you like knock the enemies around. Yeah. Yeah. So this this whole bunch of games are, are, are very interesting to me. I think so. Yeah, I will probably be picking all of them up and, and covering them at some point. Um, the next one is Ark of Alchemist, which we talked about a few episodes ago. Uh, that is coming in summer of 2019. That will be available physically and digitally as well. Uh, this is their action RPG game uh, that's got the, the sort of cute, um, sort of almost chibi characters in it. Um, so, yeah, it's party-based hack-and-slash action combat, a little bit like uh, the later Ease games and so on. But then there's also things like base building and facility upgrading and stuff like that in there. So... Yeah, I know you were interested in this one. Yeah, if, if I had to pick one of the three of these to, to get, it would definitely be Ark of Alchemist. But luckily, I'm an employed adult, so I don't have to pick one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, no, but yeah, if there's one of these I would actually like seriously play, Ark of Alchemist is definitely like my style game. Mm. I, I really I really like a good action RPG with an ease feel to it, and I really like cute, chubby character designs. Yeah. So... Like this one's got my number all over it. Yeah. Plus the desert setting is really cool mm-hmm. to me. I really like. I really, for some reason, have always liked games with a with like a desert slash Arabian Nights kind of kind of feel to it. It's always been like a environment that I think is really cool to, for stories. Yeah. All right. Uh, so the last one uh, that they've announced as well is that Date Alive Rio Reincarnation is coming in summer 29 is 2019 as well. Um, this is cool because um, Date Alive is one of those series that has just never come west for some reason, uh, but a lot of people are still fairly familiar with it. I don't actually know anything about it apart from the fact there is a lot of porn of the one girl. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, so so uh, from Idea Factory's website, so it is based off a popular light novel series, which inspired three anime adaptations uh, in the anime movie uh, Data Live Mayuri Judgment. The story of Data Live begins 30 years after a series of large disasters known as space quakes that were caused by the appearance of mysterious entities known as spirits. Shido Itsuka, the average high school student who has to be in these things, encounters the spirit who despairs of humanity. Shido is later told by his younger sister, Kotori, that he alone possesses the ability to seal the power of a spirit. Um, so this is um, a adventure visual novel hybrid, so again, sort of Ace Attorney type thing, uh, where you... I, I don't really know how it plays, to be honest. Um, but <laughs> but I know... Uh, there's ceiling, there's spirits. Yeah, You'll figure it there, out. There is obviously a significant uh, relationship aspect to it. So there's there's 11 dateable characters in there. There are 150 events with them. Um, oh, wow. And so the, uh, the, the, the sort of various ways the story goes depends on who you are... Um, uh, who you are choosing to pursue in relationships and how you how they all feel about each other and each of the 11 girls have got their own true ending and stuff like that so there, there should be a, f- a fair amount of content here 11 characters is a lot is, of dateable characters yeah definitely um so uh the other noteworthy thing about this is if i remember correctly this is uh this is one of the things that sunako's worked on that isn't neptunia Oh, I thought the art looked familiar. Yeah, so a lot of the characters, uh, it, it, the character design for Data Live is is Sunako. So if you like Neptunia and Fairy Fences art, then yeah, this is going to be something you'll want to check out. 
Um, the other cool thing uh, in this package is that as well as the Rio reincarnation uh, version, they are also uh, localizing or incorporating the content from the previously Japan-only PlayStation 3 games as well. Oh, cool. Which is cool. Um, so That's going to be a robust package. Yeah, definitely. So I, I'm not sure exactly how they're implementing that because they... Yeah, it, it kind of... It's kind of difficult to judge from what they're saying. So the words they use are two previous entries in the Data Live series that were only available on the PlayStation 3 will be included in Rio Reincarnation. Re-experience the ending of your dates route in Rin Utopia and Erusa install and experience new date endings and event sieges in Rio Reincarnation. So I, I, I kind of read that as if the, the whole previous games are in there, but I, I'm not sure if they're incorporating it into this new one or if they're having a disc that's got all three of the games as separate packages in there. Either way, I'll take it, to be honest, because this is a series I've always been curious about because I know people really like it. People really like the character designs and such like, especially erotic artists, like I said. Um, Kurumi Tokitaki, if you want to look her up. It's worth it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to ask. Um. Um, but yeah, so so that's, that's exciting to see, and that is coming in summer of 2019. Uh, one thing worth noting with that one is that the PS4 release uh, has uh, been affected by Sony's uh, hand-wringing over yeah. content in it. Um, although, because this is already out in Japan, the Japanese version hasn't been affected in this case, uh, but the two scenes have been modified. They say they haven't said what they've edited. Uh, but two scenes have been modified for the PS4 release, but it is also coming out on Steam, and the Steam version will have the original artwork from the Japanese version. And the gameplay will That's be the cool. same. So they're not cutting out any gameplay aspects, they're just changing a couple of pieces of artwork. Uh, but it remains to be seen how drastic those edits are. So if they are as cack-handed and as clumsy as some of the light beam stuff we've seen recently, then, uh, yeah. I did see a, a tweet from Idea Factory a day or so ago that, like, they they said something on the lines of like you know uh, our policies haven't changed and like we're gonna we're gonna fight to yes to put this stuff out as faithfully as possible yes yeah, so, I mean Idea, so, Idea Factory International has always been very vocal about the fact that they that they want to specifically bring stuff to the West in the exact same form that it was in Japan so this was kind of a response to how their earlier stuff was localized by Nice America and a lot uh -huh. of it ended up with cuts so things like the Mugen Souls games uh, they had like whole game mechanics cut out of them because they they either fell foul of the sensors or they just didn't want to fight for the right ESRB rating and such like and a lot of people were very upset yeah. and annoyed about that so when Idea Factory International was set up they made a specific point of mentioning that but uh, if Sony are getting involved then it's it's kind of difficult for them to do that but uh, you know sure. they could always jump to Switch <laughs> yeah well that's bizarre it's a bizarre world we yeah live in. definitely all right those are all the stories i wanted to talk about do you have anything else no no <laughs> it's a lot of news today yeah, for sure all right let's take a short break then and then we'll come back for our second segment where we've been talking about what we've been playing recently so see you in a moment Welcome back. For our second segment, we talk about what we've been playing recently, and Chris is now going to talk about 
Deltarune. <laughs> I will preface this with a possible spoiler warning. I don't know what he's going to say because I don't know anything about it. But those of you who are sensitive about such things, uh, you might want to skip forward a little bit just in case. There you yeah. go. Take it away. I'm going to do my best to not spoil anything sensitive, but I think I have to say a couple things just to talk about what's mechanically interesting about it. Um, and yeah, so this week, or well, not this week, but two weeks ago-ish, uh, Toby Fox, the creator of Undertale, surprised everybody by saying that he had a survey that you were going to be able to download that was going to help him with some direction as to developing a, a possible sequel or spin-off or follow-up to Undertale. Uh, what was to everyone's great surprise and delight was the survey was not a mere questionnaire, but it was the entire first chapter of a sequel to Undertale which is now called Deltarune. And um, this is a pretty big deal because this is like a three-hour... <laughs> like, it's the whole first chapter of this new game mm. that has been secretly developed and just dropped on us. Um, and it's amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I have been pretty vocal in previous episodes about kind of my history with Undertale coming around from being an extremely harsh critic of it um, of course, all of this having been an extremely harsh critic of it, having never played it, to uh, instantly falling in love with it <laughs> as soon as I played it. Now I'm super cringy and want like shirts and everything because I love it so <laughs> so much. Like I've done like a full like a full 180 on on Undertale. Um, and I had just finished this the pacifist run of the Switch version, so they, a Delta Rune dropping was like so perfectly timely because I was like just primed for it. Um, Deltarune essentially takes a lot of the problems I have with Undertale, fixes them entirely without subtracting any of the things I love about Undertale. So okay. it's now almost doubles down on the more traditional RPG stuff. So you've got three characters that are in a, like a Final Fantasy style battle sequence system now you, you see him standing side on like in yeah. like in the old final fantasy games um which adds further kind of hiccups and complications to the battle mechanics so um the same quirks of the original undertale are present in deltarune the idea that you don't have to kill anyone um, you can choose to satisfy enemies and make them happy through a series of unique commands, almost like a puzzle to figure out, and then spare them. Or you can kill them. It's totally up to you. Um, but there's new hiccups in the battle structure thanks to the presence of other characters. So you have your human character, Chris. You have um, Ralsei, who's kind of a mage character. Um, and he is kind of the pacifist. Like, he's the one always reminding you, like, in this world, you don't have to kill anybody. Mm -hmm. um, and he's always seeking the peaceful solution. And then you have Susie, who, um, in the original world you come from before you get transported to the dark world where the action of the game takes place is like the school bully that everyone's afraid of. Right. So her instinct is to always act with violence. So you go through a lot over the course of the demo, and eventually you get her to a point where she understands kind of peace and talking and a more friendly solution to problems. 
uh, and then you get full control of her in battle. But for the first several hours, you don't have full control of her in battle. Oh, wow. So you, you, you have to understand that Susie's impulse is to always act with violence, and she will hit and kill the enemies if you yeah. let her. Yeah. So you have to actually warn your enemies about Susie so they know to <laughs> so they know to block her attacks while you try to be friendly with them. So there's all kinds of interesting almost grandia style mechanics in there where you kind of have to anticipate what will happen next and then set up combos where um it, it it isn't just sufficient to uh, placate an enemy with the thing you know will make them friendly. Then on the next turn, pacify them. Mm -hmm. You have you have to maybe have your human set up in the same turn to placate them. Know that Ralsei acts second. Have him set up to spare them before Susie can attack them. So, so the the mechanics and the actual complexity of the combat has been increased significantly for the mm. new for the new entry just by the virtue yeah. of these two unique characters being added to the mix oh that sounds really cool yeah it's delightful um they've really polished up the graphics um you know the graphical style of the original undertale was one of my biggest complaints about it yeah. it always kind of felt like uh, i don't want to insult it right because i love the game so much but like the original undertale always kind of felt like it was trying too hard on the other end to be lo-fi pixel art like yeah. and it and it yeah. lacked and it lacked a certain refinement and the problem i always had with it was i could never really tell if it was amateurish because it was amateurish or if they were trying to nail a certain look yeah and 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 it was that it was a divide in my mind between is does it look this way on purpose or not or does it look this way because they don't know better in in my head, I would question like every single environment, every single enemy. Like, oh man, like that pixel's way out of place, or there's no symmetry to the way that character is built, or like the shading or the color choice here is really weird. And like I would, like those questions in my head always prevented me from really enjoying the visual presentation of the original, despite how mm -hmm. much I like the game itself. Yeah. Um, Delta Rune is a much more refined visual presentation. Um, there's a lot more use of um, more complex um, pixel art techniques. There's a lot more use of anti-aliasing, a lot more use of kind of color gradients. There's more use of color in general, first of yeah. all. But um, it's just a much more, to me, pleasant game to look at. So the joy of having those hang-ups about the visual presentation removed for me have allowed me to enjoy it even more. Um, and of course the soundtrack. Uh, the soundtrack is unbelievable. Um, so yeah, uh, please everybody go download the Delta Rune uh, Chapter One and, and and play it, and and I would venture to say that it is a, it is a solid playable game. Whether or not you have any experience with Undertale or care to at all, it, Delta mm -hmm. Rune is still worth playing. It, it can stand alone. You so, won't get... so so does it make references to Undertale then, or? Yeah. So okay, like here's where spoiler sensitive people can put their fingers in their ears, right? <laughs> so. It's almost like an ensemble cast thing. Right. So um, the game opens up in a, like a small town, which is very clearly a tribute to the way that um, Earthbound is made. Uh -huh. you're, just, you're kind of in like small town USA. But like all the residents of the small town USA are monsters. And many of them, you know, I'd say like 80% of them are the monsters from Undertale. Right. So, like, you go to school, 
and your teacher is Alphys, the scientist from the first Undertale. Right. Um, the the chief of police in the town is Undyne, who's the guard, the captain of the guard uh-huh. for the pa- for the palace in the in Undertale. So part like part of the joy of Deltarune is seeing all these characters reimagined in this other bizarre setting, and then trying to put two and two together to try to figure out. How is it connected? Because um, alternate realities and time travel and like all that metatextual stuff were a tremendous part of Undertale. Yeah. So is this a sequel? Is this a prequel? Does this take place in an alternate dimension? Uh, like what the heck is going on? Sounds good. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like he's, he's he's got it figured out for what people want. I've yeah I, I've seen. I haven't really seen any spoilers or anything for it so far, but I've seen a lot of people making excited noises about this. So good to and hear the that fan it seems art. to be. Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> yeah, good to see that it seems to be living up to expectations. So, um, has he given a, like a, a release window for the full thing yet, or is it just no? <laughs> mm. He's basically just said like this going to take me a long time. <laughs> um, and if you play Deltarune and understand the level of polish he's aiming for with this product. Yeah. Um, you'll understand why. Yeah. Um. He he's he's come right out and said like, listen, y- you'll notice how much more complicated the graphics are. That takes more time. Uh-huh. You'll notice how much more complicated the combat is because now I have to make an interesting combat system involving three characters. That takes more time. Yeah. Um. And I don't even want to know from a writing and narrative building perspective how much time this world takes for him to create like the, mm-hmm. the 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 references the metatextuality the the twists and turns it's all just so complicated yeah um, and then presumably the whole thing is going to have the different ways to play in it as well and the different endings and yeah so. yeah no one knows what's going to happen with that because um he has said that um unlike in undertale the decision to spare or kill enemies is now just a personal one and it's not going to affect the story at all okay now that is true for delta rune the demo we have now of chapter one Uh, so what's unclear is whether or not fox is saying that that applies to chapter one that we have or whether or not that's going to apply to the whole game right what is very clear um, and what is a running theme through the Delta Rune demo is that your choices do not matter. Okay. And and that is said to you specifically. Like there's one point where Susie the bully is going to beat you up and she asks you a question and the question pops up, you know, like with choices. And as soon as the system detects that you are moving the icon to make a choice, it stops you, <laughs> removes the removes the text box, and she goes, "You know what? Never mind. Your choices don't matter." <laughs> and Excellent. they then they do that several times throughout the demo. They present you with a choice, and then remind you that like no matter what, the outcome is going to be the same. Your choices are meaningless. Yeah. And there's there's some really cool metatextual stuff in there that I won't blow because like the very first thing the game does is really is just a giant middle finger to you and and the and the notion and the notion that your choices are meaningless so it's unclear to what extent there will be alternate endings or alternate paths based on your actions in the complete game but from what we understand the what we have now delta rune plays out no matter what you do it's just a personal choice how you want to how you want to carry yourself whether or not you want to spare or kill the enemies of course, it's also then all linked to the gameplay, right? So, like, the choice to 
perform like a normal RPG and kill the enemies, you're really robbing yourself from like the mechanical richness of this yeah. world. Yeah. Cause like the, the combat is made interesting by the sparing mechanics. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's just a cut and dry RPG. If all you're doing yeah. is attacking and healing, there's really nothing for it. So it's a choice. The choice you make is more of like, how do I want to experience this game? Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, if I ever get around to checking out Undertale, I should be sure to give that a look as well. Glad to hear that it's uh, it's lived up to its potential. Yeah, I mean, I sat down and played that thing in one sitting. Yeah, always, and always I, a good sign. Yeah, I cannot tell you how rare it is for me to sit down for like three and a half hours and play one thing for that long, like through yeah. to completion. Like, I don't do that. I don't have time to do that. I neglected things I had to do to do that. Like, I could not step away from it. High praise indeed from you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, you done with that? I am. Excellent. All right, uh, I will jump in now. I will talk a little bit about Project Zero Four or Zero Four or Fatal Frame Four, whatever you want to call it, um, which is the current game I'm playing through for the continuing cover game feature on MoeGamer.net this month. I've uh, been covering the entire Project Zero series. Project Zero 4, for the unfamiliar, is the, the only uh, Japan-only installment in the series. It's the, the, the first Wii game they did. So it was the first uh, entry in the series that wasn't on the PlayStation 2 and or Xbox. Um, it's also an interesting one, and it was the first one that wasn't uh, exclusively developed by Tecmo as well. So um, I didn't know this before I started playing it, but apparently Grasshopper Manufacture had a significant role in this one. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I'm not overly familiar with the Grasshopper Manufacture's game, so I, I can't say specifically how um, their influence shows itself, but it, it, it does feel a bit different to the previous games. Not in a, not in a bad way or anything. It's just a, just a distinct feeling. How uh, so? The, you like. get from it. So, um, so in the, the previous, um, project zero games the the combat is quite uh slow paced so it still relies on reactions <laughs> and things to um to sort of tr trigger a trigger shot uh when a ghost is flying at you or attacking you or something like that and those basic mechanics are still there in the fourth one but just just the pace of it is just a little bit faster just enough to be noticeable um, that's what i was hoping you would say like, yeah my as soon as you said grasshopper i was like oh i bet they made things snappier and more responsive yeah. Yeah, snappy, snappy is snappy is the perfect word for it because it's it's they are using almost exactly the same mechanics as the earlier games, but just just the whole thing just feels yeah it's it's hard to find a different word for it snappier. So like you can you can really easily lock onto ghosts um, uh, and take a shot. Uh, charging up your power and your camera is quite quick. Uh, the upgrading process is is it's still there, but it's a little bit streamlined. So it's now based on you finding crystals rather than the points you score. So there's no need to sort of um grind out points or anything um it also does things like uh your points can now be used at save points to actually buy items uh so although there's still things like healing items and ammunition scattered around the game world you can actually just spend your points on those at save points as well so you don't really run into that sort of typical survival horror situation where you're completely low on ammunition and stuff and a lot of people think that this is sort of a fundamental part of the survival horror experience. We talked a bit about this in the previous episode. Yeah, yeah, but, resource management. Yeah, um, but because of sort of the way the rest of the game is designed, it's very heavily based on exploring and finding things and solving puzzles and such like. Um, 
it, it kind of means that you don't end up too distracted by the resource management side of things. It's not trying to do too many things at the same time. And I was surprised how much I did miss the feeling of scarcity. It's, it's still a scary game. It still sets you on edge. There's still lots of unusual and interesting things going on around you. But just a lot of the, the tiny little tweaks they've made to the formula, they make it really, really play very, very nicely. So yeah, so this very- sounds like the one I would love. Yeah, and 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 it's the one I can't. Buy. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's actually not horrendously difficult to get running. Uh, there is a fan translation patch out there, uh, which you, you you basically stick on an SD card, and there are and then plug that into your Wii. So there are several ways you can do it. Uh, you don't have to have a hacked Wii to do it, so you don't have to have installed the Homebrew channel and such like that. Oh, there that's are good. there are ways of installing and using it. Uh, just with the standard Wii firmware. I don't know if it works on Wii U. Uh, I've been I was going to say, I don't on- even have a Wii anymore. So. Yeah. I, I don't know if it works on Wii U. I mean, theoretically, it should, I guess. Um, but I, I don't know how different the Wii U's Wii mode is from a native uh, Wii operating system. So, um, worth looking into. I, I'm sure someone out there has tried it, definitely. Um, but yeah, I'm running it on uh, a standard Wii. I've had no problems with it. Um, you just boot it up. I'm booting up through the Homebrew Launcher because I installed the Homebrew channel on there so I could play import games, primarily Trauma Team originally, but now this one as well. It just bypasses the region locking altogether. Um, you you put the patch files in the right place on the SD card and then run a particular application, um, and it will basically apply that patch to the game, and it will it will basically tweak the game so certain bits of data it loads from the SD card instead of from the game disk. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all very cleverly done. It seems like a pretty slickly produced patch as well. Uh, there don't seem to be a lot in the way of sort of spelling or typographical errors in there. So it's a very well done uh, effort that's obviously been a labor of love for the people involved in it. So yeah, a lot of kudos to them. Um, it is a little tricky to track down these days because the, the site it was originally hosted on is uh, no longer on the internet. But uh, actually archive.org have a copy of this fan translation patch. So you can download it from there, uh, and the package for it comes with full instructions on how to install it as well. So if you're interested in checking out this fourth game, which I, I strongly recommend because it's really, really very good, um, yeah, take a look. One thing I, I am finding quite interesting about it as well is that this one came out in 2008, I think, uh, and then they did the Wii remake of Project Zero 2 uh, in 2011. I think this one plays better than Project Zero Two on the Wii, huh. <coughs> which is kind of strange uh, because it's it's basically using the same engine and mechanics. So the Wii version of Project Zero Two uses the same over-the-shoulder perspective that um, Four does, rather than the fixed camera angles of the original game. Um, but just things like the the use of motion controls just doesn't feel as polished in project zero two huh. <coughs> oh excuse me um yeah so it's it's not like project zero isn't unplayable or bad by any means but it's um yeah four is definitely a more polished and and kind of satisfying experience i think it's i think it's my favorite so far in the series so i haven't got to the wii u one uh, maiden of blackwater yet but yeah definitely so far i'm very impressed Right, uh, I need to drink something, so you talk for a bit. <laughs> oh, okay, sure. Uh, so the other thing I've been playing uh, these past two weeks is I finally uh, started up my file in Dragon Quest XI. Um, I just kind of booted it up because I wanted to check it out because uh-huh. um, the graphics and the presentation are so gorgeous. 
Um, but in classic Dragon Quest fashion, I am now totally sucked in, so that's the game I'm playing right now. Excellent. Um, it is everything I expected it to be. It's friendly and delightful and completely, um, you know, unself-aware, um, which is, of course, to me, always been the hallmark of Dragon Quest is it's just so sweet and earnest and honest <laughs> in, pre- in, in, in presenting its picture of itself. Um, so I think anyone who really enjoyed Dragon Quest Eight will feel right at home with Eleven. Um, it, it feels very similar, um, you know, great big explorable fields. Um, what is new um, in terms of the design and whatnot is um, a larger sense of verticality, okay. which is which is something that Dragon Quest has never had before. Um, so Dragon Quest Eleven has a jump button, believe it or not. Oh, wow. um, and so, um, you know, you can go into towns and climb up on the roofs and explore um, now in, in, a, in also a vertical uh, vertical frame of mind. So like when you get to the first big town, um, they're very careful to give you sub-quests and stuff that kind of ease you into the idea that this is now part of what you can do. So it's like mm-hmm. classic, like, little girl, my kitty's on the roof, go find the kitty. And then it, there's um, kind of an environmental puzzle involved. Like, okay, so which house has an attic that lets me out on the roof? And then, oh, good, this house has a clothesline to the next house over. And, like, so... Um, exploration is delightful now on top of all the other Dragon Quest treats um, combat and complexity of character development has been scaled back a little bit from prior Dragon Quest games so there's no longer in this particular game a class system okay. um, e- each character is just that character um, and then there's um, a skill development system with points with hexagons and then each of those boards of hexagons is divided up into the different skill sets that that character has. Right. So the main character, he has either sword and shield, uh, swordsmanship, which are just skills related to bolstering his sword abilities, uh, two-handed great swords, or luminary powers, which are like his magic abilities. Okay. So as you get your skill points, you're just choosing, do I want to unlock a sword and shield ability? Do I want to specialize in the two-handed broadswords? Uh, do I want to unlock a new spell? Um, and then which hexagon you unlock then makes the ones next to it available for next time. So you're, you're building your way through this board. It's not unlike the... Uh, the board in FF12 or, or the sphere system in Final Fantasy X. Right. Um, so then each character has their own unique board that has their different skill sets. So the, the, the first extra character you get is the thief guy. So his thievery skills are one of his size of the board. Then he has the ability to fight with swords, daggers, or boomerangs. And so you're just making those choices as to how you want to develop the characters. Um, and it's very forgiving. Um, you can you can cash in and get your points back at the goddess statues and reset your characters if you want and experiment okay. with different builds. Cool. Um, so it's never it's never punishing you for making bad choices. You can you can respec at will, which is nice. Um, but otherwise, it's just a tremendously polished package. Because it's Dragon Quest, right? It has to be. Yeah. It's just beautiful, and the environments are a joy to explore, and the characters are endearing, and um, 
I also believe I've discovered kind of the narrative and mechanical hook. Um, every Dragon Quest has kind of a narrative and mechanical defining feature that kind of ties into the subtitle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who've listened to us in the past and read your site know, um, you know, Dragon Quest Four is Chapters of the Chosen. So the, the mechanical and narrative hook in that is the different characters that you get to experience their stories one by one until they finally unite. Uh, Hand of the Heavenly Bride is about um, the family raising and, and like living a life mechanic um, culminating in your choice of a, a, a wife and then the children that result in that marriage and how that influences the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, chap- uh, six is Realms of Reverie and that has a dim- an interdimensional travel mechanic. Uh, so a Eleven is Echoes of an Elusive Age, and where that ties in is the main character. Um, all over the world, there are roots of the world tree Yggdrasil that appear, like that kind of will be popping out of the ground here and there. And whenever you encounter an obstacle in the game, you'll very likely also find a root of Yggdrasil nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, when you speak to the root of Yggdrasil, the main character is given a flashback to the past, right? The echoes of an elusive age. Yeah. He's he's given a flashback to the past where he is able to see the memories of Yggdrasil and what it has recorded about the thing that happened here that went wrong. Yeah. And then it, and then it's up to you to fix that problem. Um, okay. Yeah. Now where it gets a little sticky is I've done the second flashback at this point, which is very heavily story important, so I won't ruin anything about it. But um, it's become clear also that you're not just experiencing the flashback, you're also there. Right. So there, so there's a time travel element as well. Um, you're not just seeing what Yggdrasil sees, like you're actually transported to that time and place and you're present in that in that past then. Oh, which can cool. then which then can, can then allow you to do things or speak to people to influence the things that can help you then in the future when you try to rectify the problem. Yeah. So it's really cool. And I haven't read a single review or think piece that even touches on that aspect of it. <laughs> uh, surprise. And that's it and, and that hits you relatively early. I've only maybe got about six hours into the game and I've and I've had to problem solve with that mechanic twice now. Yeah. Um and it's it's really cool. It's it's really fun. And it's very Dragon Quest. You know, it's not, the first one you encounter is silly, right? Like you're in the woods, the woodcutter's hut is right there, but there's no people around. There's just a dog. Mm-hmm. And you and you can't progress through the forest because the bridge is broken. So it turns out that like uh, a goblin cursed the woodcutter and turned him into a dog. So the dog you see running around the woodcutter's camp is the woodcutter. Yeah. So then you have to hunt the goblin down to break the curse to save the woodcutter, and then he helps you by repairing the bridge, and then you can proceed. So it's it's all very cute and fairy tale-y, and it's delightful. Hmm. So yeah, like that's it. DQ11 and my experience with it thus far. Sounds great. Yes. Looking forward to getting on to that eventually. I need to get back to the Dragon Quest, actually. I'm uh, right at the end of five still and uh, haven't gotten around to beating the last boss yet. But uh, Oh, I thought you'd finished that one. No, no, I got to the last boss and it actually kicked my ass, so I need to do a bit of uh, little bit of grinding before I try mm-hmm. again. Um, but, uh, yeah, I will get back to that and report back on that as soon as I can. All right. Does that um, one have a significant end game like 4 did? I remember the expanded version of 4, you, it had a pretty significant... 
yeah kind of there's like an alternate there's like end a, chapter there's like a whole extra chapter in four i don't know if there's like a whole uh add-on chapter in five as there is in the same way i know this there's definitely an extra dungeon um which apparently in dragon quest parlance is referred to as the fungeon um <laughs> Oh, the uh, pun game is strong in eleven. Let me tell you. Excellent. Um, yes, yeah, so, so I know that 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 is a thing, uh, but I don't know how substantial the actual sort of additional story content beyond the end is. But uh, we'll see, I guess. All right. Um, the the only other real thing that I've been playing recently is the one of the things I'd like to talk about in the third segment, which is Taiko no Tatsujin. So I will save that for our next segment. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to bring up? I'm thinking, but no, it's just been uh, it's just been Deltarune and Dragon Quest when I have the time for it. All right, well, that works for me then. Let's take a short break, and then we'll come back, and we'll talk about our main topic for today, which is music games. So we'll see you in a moment. Welcome back. For our third segment today, we wanted to talk a bit about music and rhythm games. Now, this was mostly inspired by the recent release of two Taiko no Tatsujin games, uh, one on PlayStation 4 and one on Nintendo Switch. Um, this is, I believe, the first time the series has come to Europe. Um, you've had one in North America before, is that right? Yeah, on the PS2 many, mm. many moons ago. Yeah, that was like 2004 or something, I think. So it's, it's been a long wait for Western players, regardless of where you are. Um, yeah, so I picked up the Nintendo Switch version recently. I got the, the bundle that comes with the game, uh, physical copy, and the drum controller, which is made by Hori. And uh, yeah, I've been really enjoying it so far. So um, I just wanted to talk a bit specifically about Taiko no Tachijin, first of all, and then we'll... Uh, segue into a discussion about rhythm games in general so mm-hmm. um so, so so you're you're a bit more familiar with this series than me um so when did you first encounter taiko no tatsujin i mean i think at this point you're more familiar with it than me <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> but uh you mean my my experience with taiko no tatsujin just comes from um when i was in college i had a friend matt who was like a rhythm game guy yeah, like it was like his life. Like he he ran a very popular um, American uh, beat mania fan site. It was out, okay. out outphasing.net and it was kind of like one of the like North American like forums for for fans of the specifically the Konami Bimani series, yeah. but um, rhythm games in general. And so when we got the U.S. version of Taiko no Tatsujin in the West, and he immediately was on top of it. So I had, <laughs> I had fond memories of. Um, no, I used to work. I've mentioned before in a small independently owned game shop, and um, you know, usually Friday nights, Matt would come by with like whatever new like rhythm game peripheral he happened to have acquired <laughs> that week, and uh, you know. Uh, I remember the weekend very vividly when he brought Tycho, and it was just a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, that's really the only experience I have with it is just just good memories of playing it with friends because it's a great oh, part- it's a great party game. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, so for the unfamiliar, then Tycho no Tatsujin is a a rhythm game that's actually fairly simple in terms of its basic mechanics. So uh, you have a drum which you can play either with the drum controller, uh, like I've got, uh, or you can play it with a controller. Or on the Switch version, you can play with motion controls as well. Don't do that. Don't ever do that. Um, <laughs> 
um but yeah the the, the basic mechanic is that there's uh, there's there's two main types of notes that you get you have don notes which are red and that means hit the drum or press a particular button and you have ka notes which mean you hit the rim of the drum uh, or if you're playing with a controller you just hit a different button um and then you you play through various songs with combinations of these these patterns in there sometimes you have drum rolls to do uh, which are on the main part of the drum uh, sometimes you have large notes which if you're playing on the drum controller means you have to hit both sides of the drum at once instead of just one um, or if you're playing with buttons you hit two buttons at once instead of just one and you yeah that's that's pretty much it so you clear a song by uh, getting a bar on screen above a particular point you don't have to perfectly clear it or anything like that it's normally around the sort of 75 percent 80 percent mark or so so you gain stuff on that meter for getting notes right you gain a bit more if you perfectly time them you lose a bit every time you miss a note um and then you score points based on uh the accuracy of your hits and the combo that you build up over time as well so uh every every so often in the combo uh, each note you hit will start being worth more points in the later versions including the switch version that i've been playing you get a significant point bonus every hundred uh, notes you hit in a combo as well um and yeah it's it's just a game where you work your way through you try and clear all the songs you gradually work your way up through difficulty levels there's no real sort of meta game to the switch version i know some previous console versions have had like a story mode and stuff like that but there's nothing like that in the switch version it's just big song list a few of the songs are locked to begin with until you play through a certain number of times and you just have to try and clear them um there are five difficulty levels altogether so starting with easy um and then they go through normal hard extreme and then there's like a super extreme mode beyond that as well that you can optionally turn on as well that apparently used to be like a secret mode in the arcade version but it's pretty readily accessible on the switch version right from the outset so you can jump right into that if you really reckon your skills um yeah so this is the kind of rhythm game i like well we'll we'll get a bit more onto rhythm games in general on this but this is this is the kind of rhythm game i really like in that it feels like you are you are playing a part in the performance so you're not just like tapping to the beat or anything like that you're not sort of uh, you're not sort of doing it to trigger dance moves or anything like that it feels like you are playing an instrument so uh, the, the sound you make hitting the drum controller it sounds like you're playing along with that piece of music and that's that's something i really really like um and it's it's just a really satisfying game to play it's so simple but it's so accessible as well i've had my wife playing it a bit as well she's not very good at it but uh you know she she enjoys giving it a go she's not overly familiar with rhythm games but the the way you interact with this by hitting something is so easily understandable so fundamental that it's it's really accessible and yeah i i completely believe you when you say it's a good party game for that reason mm-hmm. yeah especially if you've got two yes you've got two uh, drums <laughs> yes my budget can't quite stretch that far at the minute but uh you, no. yeah you, you you can play with a mix of different controllers if you want to so uh, you can play with one person on the drum one on the controller and such like or you can just play the single player mode and compete for high scores uh, which is another perfectly valid way of doing it and uh, will probably be the main way that i play it <laughs> um but yeah so this is sort of the, the the latest in a long line of rhythm games that i've really enjoyed over the years so um I think the first time I encountered them was probably back in... It must have been in the PS1 era, because that's really where it got its start, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I can't historically think of a game that's what, you know, what we traditionally call a rhythm game these days mm-hmm. before before PS1. I mean, for me, Parappa was the first thing I ever experienced like this. Yeah. 
I mean, there are, there are odd games that had elements of what we now recognize as rhythm games. Like, there's a really old um, 8-bit computer game from Activision called Master of the Lamps. Um, and part of that game, uh, it was mostly about flying through rings on a magic carpet. But between every level on that, there was a sequence where you had to, uh, you had to play various gongs. Um, and you were basically playing back a musical pattern to someone who just played it at you. And it was mostly more a test of memory than anything else. But yeah, it, it was like Simon. It, yeah, it was very much a Simon type thing. But um, th- there was a musical element to it. So like the um, you, you had to do it before these notes fell down the screen on you, and the the speed at which the notes fell down on the screen was related to sort of the musical pattern that had been played to you before. Okay. But it wasn't sort of specifically. You weren't like marked on your accuracy or anything. You just had to hit the note before the actual icon of the note floated down the screen and hit you. So. That was an early example of a game with musical elements, but I think the first actual rhythm game I played where it was it was all about staying on the beat uh, for me was Buster Groove, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember you mentioning how much of a fan you were of that. Mm. Yeah, so this... I, I, I can't remember exactly how or why we came into contact with this, but this is one of those games that me and several of my friends all bought uh, around the same time uh, because we, we really enjoyed it. And uh, Buster Groove is a game that was designed um, to it was designed to resemble a fighting game, but instead of fighting, it, it was a one-on-one dance competition. So you pick one of several different characters, um, you uh, go to a particular stage, and then you have a one-on-one dance-off. And the way it works is, um, as you're playing, the camera will pan around towards one or either of the characters. Uh, and the one that the camera is closer to at the end of the match is the one who wins and so um, the position of the camera is based on sort of a, uh, an invisible score ranking that both players have got so uh, whoever whoever is doing better basically will have the camera closer to them but it doesn't actually make that explicit in any way other than the actual view you've got on the screen and that also means that it can do a big swing at any moment as well if you um, if you sort of uh, mess one particular moment up or someone manages to pull ahead and so on. But it also means that matches can quite easily end in a bit of stalemate as well. So um, there are a few elements in there to try and counter that mechanic. So um, each character gets at least one opportunity in a song to do a solo, which is an uninterrupted bit where the other character doesn't score any points. And then the other character will get an opportunity to do that in the song as well. And then you also have a limited number of attacks uh, in there as well. So... Um, the way Buster Move basically works is the only button you have to hit in rhythm is on the fourth beat. And it will either be the circle or the cross button on the PlayStation controller. Okay. Um, as the rhythmic patterns get more complicated, there's there's like a sort of tree of various patterns you can work your way through. So you start with just pressing circle or, uh, circle or cross uh, on the fourth beat of the song. And then it gradually starts adding in new directions and all you have to do is squeeze those directions in before the fourth beat and then press the button in time and what you can do is you can press the triangle button instead of the circle or the cross button and that doesn't attack instead but it still has to be in time and if you do that it sends an attack towards your other uh, towards the other person who can then dodge that attack if they press the defend button which is the square button in time with the move that they're currently doing as well so there's kind of a balance between just doing the standard rhythm stuff in there as well and paying attention to what your opponent's doing as well. So there's okay. like a very there's a very clear audible and visual cue on when someone is going to attack you and then it sort of comes out on the next bar. So you just have to respond to that quickly. Um, and again, it doesn't do a huge amount to, um, 
to sort of affect those stalemates between equally skilled players but you'll often find that things come right down to sort of the last few moments of a song when someone just makes one slip up or something like that so structurally and mechanically it wasn't perfect by any means um I'd argue that it probably worked better as a single-player game than a two-player game, uh, because mm. playing it as single-player, you just basically worked your way through like a fighting game's arcade mode uh, until the, the, the last level, which was you dancing on top of a building against a giant robot that was destroying a city. <laughs> um, but the, the thing that really struck us about Buster Move was the, the, the quality of the music that was in there. It was all original music that had been composed specifically for uh, this game. Oh, I like that. Uh, and they were all character songs as well. So uh, they were all songs that related to the the characters whose stage they were on as well. So there was uh, there was like a, a, a guy who was uh, obsessed with burgers. So like his song was sort of like a hip hop number about how much he liked burgers and so on. And, <laughs> um, there was one that was a, a little kid. So uh, her song was like a really cheesy little pop number about her cuddly toy mouse and that sort of thing. And there was uh, Kitty N who was like sort of dressed up in this sort of skin tight superhero outfit and hers was like a really cheesy euro beat number and so on they all had lyrics that you could listen to so they were in japanese in the original but they actually localized the lyrics for the uh, the western version so you could hear what they were singing about and yeah it was it was just something that was really fun to experience so like i say the the, the mechanical side of things it, it had its flaws in there but the thing that really stuck with us was just the quality of the music and the way it complemented the characters and so on so um, and I think that's that's a similar sort of thing to what to the approach Parappa took as well. So it, it had really catchy tunes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the mechanics in Parappa I never quite understood completely because in many cases it seemed like you got more points if you sort of just freestyled over the top of things, particularly after you played through the game once. Um, I believe that is how it was supposed to work, but... I, I think my copy, I never actually had a manual for it, so I was never actually able to, co- to confirm exactly how you're supposed to play that game. But um, Yeah, I was never any good at it, I can tell you that much. Mm. That's going to be a running theme of this conversation. <laughs> that I have no rhythm and I'm terrible at music games. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, for those of you who don't know, I have been a musician since the age of about five or so, so I've been playing piano since I was five. Uh, I've been playing clarinet since I was about, I guess, 11 or 12 or so, and then I took up saxophone in high school as well. So um, I have a, a solid understanding of musical principles and how to play various instruments. I've, I've done some singing and stuff as well. So, yeah, I, I have pretty pretty broad musical experience. And, um, yeah, the thing I like about a good music game, like I say, is, is, is feeling like you're part of that performance. Um Buster Groove was not a game where I really felt that sort of thing because the, like I say, the only part you really did need to do in time on that on that game was the fourth beat of each one. But it was still satisfying to sort of tap your feet along with the beat and uh, actually get those things timed nicely. Um, Parappa, I enjoyed, uh, even if I didn't completely understand the way it was scoring you and so on, just by the fact that it did kind of encourage a bit of free expression in there with with sort of your freestyle things and it was satisfying to sort of press the different buttons and hear the different combinations of sound you could get coming out of the game uh, in different ways and it was yeah it was it was fun to play that was another game that wasn't designed to be multiplayer but uh, me and my friends at university and in high school we used to play it together anyway just because it was it was a fun thing to play together mm-hmm. uh, to see the the, the kind of variations in the pieces of music you could create you could tell he was more confident with things like 
musical performance and improvisation and so on because they, they would go a bit more wild in the their freestyle sections than other people um moving beyond that i guess probably the next one i played would have been um ddr oh okay sure yeah. yeah. So, do, do you have much experience with DDR? I do. I do. I used to have a mat and everything. Um, mm. I, I had a I had a friend who lost about 130 pounds playing DDR. <laughs> like that was his workout routine, and it yeah. was very successful for him. So, I knew a lot of people in my local gaming community who always viewed DDR as like the magical way to exercise and play video games at the same time. <laughs> so. Um, I, I had a mat and I, I played it a little bit back in the day. I'm, but once again, I have no, I have no sense of rhythm. So yeah. it, my, my success with it was pretty, pretty slim to none. Yeah, DDR was my, th- I think probably my first encounter with um, sort of the, 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 what I think of as is the modern Japanese rhythm game. Yeah, in well, the, that's the first of the Bimani, right? Well, no, Bimani started with Beat Mania. That's why it's Bimani. But yeah, it was kind um, of. In the West, at least, our first exposure to Konami's Bimani series. Yeah, did Bimani come out over here? I can't remember. I think I, it, I think I think it might have come to North America, but I don't remember ever seeing it over here. Because I remember yeah. reading about it and thinking I'd like to play that, and then it never being a possibility. So if we did, we never got the controllers. Right. It was okay. just like played on the control pad. Yeah, not the same. Not the same at all. Um, but yeah, DDR or it was called Dancing Stage over here for some reason. So I had. Um, I had two different PlayStation 1 versions of that originally. I had... Um, one was called Party Mix, I think. And I think there was another one just called something like Euromix or something like that. And so both of those, they had they had a combination of um, well-known um, songs from the charts at the time. And also a selection of original stuff as well in there. So it had like those various Konami tracks and the, the sort of ridiculous 160 beats per minute drum and bass numbers that they put in there for the Extreme Experts. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what I mean by my my first encounter with um, a modern Japanese rhythm game is the fact that um, on its easiest difficulty level, it's it's pretty accessible. Most people can kind of get a handle on it. Understand that you need to press the arrows at the right time when they hit the arrows at the top of the screen and so on. Um, but what I wasn't ready for was quite how hard the hard levels were. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Um, because uh, by this point, like I say, my previous contact with the genre had been uh, with Buster Groove and with Parappa the Rapper, neither of which had sort of hard difficulties. They just had the one difficulty mode. You just played it through and that was it. Whereas when when we got to DDR and I was looking at the hard mode and it was expecting you to tap things out in sort of 16th notes and stuff like that. And I was, yeah, first time I encountered that, I was like, how are you actually supposed to make your feet move that fast? <laughs> People do um, it. Yeah, I know. People absolutely do it. And it's this this side of things is something that has, has really carried forward from DDR and presumably B-Money as well um, into the, the more modern rhythm games we've got in that there is there is a very low barrier to entry for these games, but there is an extremely, extremely high skill ceiling on them. Yeah. Um, so, which is which is great, really, because it means that sort of the maximum people possible can enjoy these games, which which I love. Me too. Um, it does mean that uh, <laughs> it can get a bit demoralising after a while when you when you you try and graduate from whatever difficulty level you're feeling comfortable with, and it's just it's just too difficult. But it is one of those things where practice does make a difference. It's diffi- it's difficult when a game tells you you're done with it. 
versus yeah. <laughs> it only really happens with these kind of games right like most games i decide i'm done with a game with yeah. a rhythm with a rhythm game it reaches the difficulty level where it's clear that it's exceeded anything i could ever do and then it's like <laughs> the, the, the game tells me it's done with me <laughs> yeah i'm like I say, in in a lot of ways, this this does tie in with what I've said about uh, about rhythm games that feel like you're part of the performance. In that, um, getting good at these games is not about being able to respond to the things on the screen. Uh, getting good at these games is about learning those songs and learning how to perform them without looking at the game. Yeah, uh, and the same is true whether it's DDR, whether it's Taiko no Tatsujin, whether it's Hatsune Miku Project Diva. All of these modern games of this design work in this way. So they are games that reward practice, they reward dedication, they reward you actually taking the time to learn and memorize these songs, just as if you were learning to play a real instrument. Mm -hmm. So if you will, just as if you were learning to, to perform a song on the stage and you didn't want to have a music stand with some music in front of you, you just wanted to perform it. Getting good at a rhythm game is exactly the same skill set. It is learning how, it, while you are learning the piece, it is learning how to pass the information you've got in front of you and what, how you translate that into physical movements. And then you reach a point where you, something clicks, something clicks, and you, you, you think, right, I know this now. I know how this bit goes. I know there's a drum roll here, or I have to tap X here, or whatever. And yeah, you reach a point where you, you are just playing the song. You're not. You're not playing a game anymore. You are just playing the song on on whatever yeah. controller you're using, and that 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 is the thing that I really like. I, I I think of that as sort of being in the zone with a rhythm game. It's funny because like, yeah, it's the rhythm games in my lifetime that I've had the most success with are the ones where I know the music in the first place. Yeah. So like, one of the rhythm games I've had the most success with was the the Final Fantasy theater rhythm. Oh yes, yes. Be because I know all those tracks, mm. like by heart. Yeah. Like, I know where the beat is in those tracks. I know where the notes strike in those tracks. Uh -huh. So I, I was okay at, Kurt, at at a theater rhythm right off the bat because mm -hmm. I didn't have to learn those songs. I just had to learn the skill set the game required of me to play it. Right. And then, and then apply that to my knowledge of those songs. Yeah. Yeah. Um. This, this is one thing that, that I sort of get stuck in my head sometimes with rhythm games. So, like... I, I was sort of hesitating a bit on Taiko no Tatsujin because I looked at the track list and I thought, well, there's there's a few songs on there I know. Like, I know Jump Up Superstar from Super Mario Odyssey. I know the Kirby theme. I know the Splatoon music and such like. But, like, there's a whole bunch of anime themes in there that I don't know. There's some original songs for there. And, like, a big hesitation that I think a lot of people feel with these games is, oh, I don't, I don't know these songs, therefore I won't be able to play this game. Um... But what I found with Taika no Tatsujin, as I found with stuff like Project Diva, uh, in, in which I know none of the songs beforehand because they're sort of obscure Vocaloid tracks, is that after a while you start to recognize various patterns. And again, this is a very sort of real-life musical skill. Um, so when you're learning to play the piano or the clarinet or whatever, you learn to recognize certain patterns. You know that if you do this certain thing it's probably going to lead in this direction afterwards there are certain compositional techniques that all composers use it's very difficult to avoid because if you don't use them it leaves the listener feeling um sort of unfulfilled or unsatisfied in some ways it's it's the reason that a lot of pieces the, the way that we compose music the way musical theory has developed over the years has developed the way it is because certain things are inherently pleasing to the ear and they're very natural to feel so like if i if i tap out a certain rhythm if i just tap out like you 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 know that you need 
to finish that off. And it's 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 just that sort of thing in there. And it happens in these rhythm games as well, that after a while you start recognizing how the beat works, how the how the people who've set up the note charts are going to respond to those beats, how they're gonna make you compliment the music. And yeah, as as someone who who has been playing music for as long as I have now, it's um yeah, it's 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 a really nice thing to feel. So, but it's also quite interesting to to, to hear from someone who has who has less experience with the musical thing. So, do, do you find that you really struggle with pieces of music that you're not familiar with beforehand in a music game? Then, or do you yeah, start, do, I, you, do, you, do you start feeling what I've described after a while? Or I mean, after a while, like after familiarity sets in, certainly. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I tend. With one another, my favorite music and rhythm game of all time, right, is Guitaru Man. Right. And that's much like you were describing um, Bust a Move, or I'm sorry, Bust a Groove. Um, it, it's all original tracks about the characters and the story that's going on at the same time. Yeah. So, like, the first couple times you play Guitaru Man, you have no familiarity. Mm hmm. But it, but like after a while, because Guitar Man's whole thing is like it's basically like an interactive musical. Like the songs are so catchy that you learn the songs, yeah, and then and then you know the game, and then all of a sudden you're really good at it. Yeah, yeah. Like so, if I take the time to memorize the tracks and get it, then I can kind of reach a point where uh, you know I'm f more familiar and more comfortable. But um, what I find is like in order to be successful at a music or rhythm game, I have to have that. I have to have that ability to memorize and familiarize myself with the tracks. Yeah. So um, an example of a rhythm game I'm terrible at is Nintendo's Rhythm Heaven series. Okay. Because they are games that revolve around skill with rhythm. Yeah. Right. In the Rhythm Heaven games, you are not playing a track. You're not memorizing a song. You're literally testing your acumen with rhythm and mm -hmm. timing. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter how much I play Rhythm Heaven, I bounce off it. Mm -hmm. Because it's just not a skill I have. And if I don't have the aid of a song to memorize that I can hum along in my head with it, like, it totally defeats me. Like yeah. when I'm just when I'm just expected to understand rhythm and the way timing works, like I fail every time. <laughs> yeah, that's that's understandable. Rhythm Heaven is quite an interesting one because, yeah, it, it is basically the opposite of what I've been describing there. I do really like Rhythm Heaven in both its DS and Wii versions. They're great games. Yeah, um, but but in Rhythm Heaven, as you say, it's it's a lot about uh, accuracy and that kind of thing and responding to cues and such like. Again, um, Rhythm Heaven is not a game where you are responding to visual cues as such. There are visual cues on screen, but it's mostly about listening to the music and pressing the buttons at the right time in the music. And that relies on having a good ear for it, understanding which button does what, uh, which button is going to produce which sound, um, and so on like that. So, so for me, that game feels really natural. Mm -hmm. uh, but but I can understand if, if you are less used to using that particular skill set then yeah i can i can completely understand how people would bounce off that completely as well even though it's it seems like a mechanically simple game like in most games of rhythm heaven all you have to do is tap the screen or press a button yeah <laughs> like you yeah. Say, it should it should be really simple right but no 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 no, <laughs> no it's a monster it's hmm. a beautiful monster but it's a monster yeah and I, I, f I found this quite interesting um, if, if we just... I know we're jumping around a lot, but, but back to the PS1 era again. Have you played um, Vib Ribbon at all? 
No, I never have. Mm. Familiar, familiar with it just from a historical standpoint, but I've never had the opportunity to play it. Yeah, so so Vib Ribbon, I remember being hyped up quite a bit when it originally released uh, because it was from the same guy who did Parappa, isn't it? If I remember correctly. No, I don't know. I don't remember. Mm, so, so something like that anyway it was certainly hyped up as sort of an interesting new rhythm game when it originally came out it's a very simple game it's all about a wireframe rabbit running along a white line and uh what you do in vib ribbon is a piece of music plays and then various obstacles appear a bit like a sort of auto running platform game and you just have to press the right button at the right time to get over the various obstacles so for example if there's a squiggly line on the floor you press the x button to roll over it uh, if there's a, um, a sort of uh, a, a ledge to jump onto, you press the shoulder button. But all these obstacles appear in time in the music. Um, and Vib Ribbon came with, I think, it came with like th- like three built-in musical tracks. But one of its main gimmicks was the fact you could put any audio CD into it and it would generate a level for you. And so one of the interesting things about that game was putting in different pieces of music and seeing how easy or how difficult the levels it would generate for you. And I remember uh, when I was playing that with a friend of mine um, who was sort of less musically minded than I am. He didn't have, I mean, he listened to and appreciated music, but he didn't play it like I did. Mm -hmm. And he he really struggled with some of the more complex patterns, uh, whereas I was sort of happily banging away at these things because he didn't, because he'd only really played Buster Groove at that point, he didn't really understand the concept of a game where you were sort of playing counter rhythms to the music. He was he was familiar with sort of tapping things out in time with the beat and so on. So yeah. uh, he, he really struggled with that. Uh, whereas I, fe- I, fe- I didn't find it easy by any means because it would generate some really fiendish levels at times. But I kind of understood the logic behind how it was creating those levels from the music and uh yeah that was that was an interesting thing so yeah i never got the chance to play that that never came out in north america i did it not uh and no it was that was pal and japan only uh, but you're you're right that was messiah matsura that was the parappa and i'm Jemmerlammy guy yes yes that 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 is a really cool game uh it's it, it's worth a look if you get the chance um it's got very strange built-in music it, that uh, is sort of deliberately designed to create difficult levels so it's got lots of tempo changes in there it's got lots of strange rhythms and so on so especially on the harder levels you're sort of playing this song that is speeding up and slowing down it's it, it's yeah it's it's like a bit of a fever dream by the end of it but it's it's just presented so simply it's all in this wireframe black and white style it's, it's beautiful to look at yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting game but like i said I, I didn't at the time you know ps1 era i didn't exactly have i was probably I was in my early teens, so I yeah. didn't have the I didn't have the capability to import. Yeah. Um, so I'm familiar with it, but I've I've never played it. Yeah, that's fair enough. Okay, so um, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of couple of games that have struck you over the years uh, in the genre. Are there, are there any others that you wanna you wanna mention? I mean, for me, right? Um, as I've mentioned, because it's not really a genre, I'm very good at it doesn't really mm-hmm. fit with my skill set yeah it's not really one i've played much or really seek out much like i said i played theater rhythm because i like final fantasy i've played um i played guitar man because it was just so off the wall in yeah. its presentation and and what it wanted to do that i i really fell in love with it but um rhythm games as such aren't really a genre i i super pursue because i i just don't get it yeah, but what what I like are games where there's a heavy rhythm and music influence as part of the mechanics, but right. not necessarily yes. rhythm games. Yes. So like 
Like, I love, like, Rez is one mm-hmm. of my favorite games of all time. Mm-hmm. And yep. Rez is a game that anyone can play it, whether you like music or not. It's just an on-rails shooter, like Panzer Dragoon. But your performance influences the music, and your ability to appreciate music helps you appreciate the game's presentation more. Yeah. But your ability to play and understand how to make music doesn't detract from your ability to play the game. Yes. And yes. and so those are the kind of games with a rhythm or music influence I like, where like music is a tremendous part of them, but not the the ability to play music and understand music is not 100% necessary to really get the best of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so so I mean we can we can lump in most of uh, Mizuguchi's work in here, can't we? Right, and I love all his. You know, Luminous is one of my favorite puzzle games of all time for that ver- reason. You know, when you're performing well, the music is performing well, and you're in the zone. Yeah, but you don't really have to understand the degree to which you're doing that. It's all just tied to the mechanics of the puzzle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 Res is the same. So Res, you can play and you can think, oh, what whatever I just did made a really cool sound. And you can try and sort of seek that out again and try and try and achieve that again, but you don't need to know the musical theory to do that. So, yeah, that's that's a really interesting implementation of uh, of music. Um, other ones that I would bring up in that kind of field would be uh, Every Extend Extra is a good one. Yeah, that's a great game. Yeah, so yeah, particularly the the Xbox 360 version of that is fantastic. Um, have you played that that particular version? I have only demo. Um, right, I I only own the PSP one. Yeah, but I, I've I've played the demo of the 360 version. Yeah, the um, the Xbox 360 version has got this really lovely sort of uh, minimalist, almost sort of LCD vector graphics style to it. And okay. It, it, yeah, it just looks great and beautiful and responds really nicely to the music. And there's various different music tracks in there that uh, will respond differently and at different speeds and so on. So that's another one where. <clears throat> Like we say, you don't you don't necessarily need to understand the musical theory to get something out of it, but there are benefits if you do. So there's things like the sort of pulsing beat bar in there. So if you time your explosions perfectly and every extend extra, you'll get bigger explosions, and that will let, lead you to higher scores and so on. Um, other ones that I can think of, um, there was a, a, a slightly lesser known one that I really like. Uh, it's a game called Beat Hazard. Have you ever heard of that one? You know, the name is very familiar to me, but I can't put a picture to it. Yeah, so Beat Hazard was originally... I think it came out in the Xbox Live Indie Games thing originally. That was, okay. certainly, my, that was certainly my first contact with it, so it's, it's not surprising that no one heard of it there, because no one paid any attention to that part of the marketplace, except for me, I think, sometimes. Oh, no, um, I used to explore <laughs> deep. <coughs> Protect Me Night. Amazing game. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, Beat Hazard is a game... It's a twin-stick shooter. Um, that generates levels from your music tracks. So, um, basically, if you've got a really high-tempo, fast, loud piece of music, you will have a really difficult series of of things flying in to try and defeat you. If you play something that's a bit calmer, then you'll have a much calmer experience. And, again, it's it's not something that you, you, you actually have to play the music at. Um, but you can you can use whatever you like as an accompaniment to the action, and the on-screen action will complement that very nicely. And it's it's just a really a really fun little twin-stick shooter as well. Since its original Xbox 360 release, it has also come out on PC. I don't recall if it came out on anything else as well, but it, it's certainly available on Steam and mm-hmm. various other places on PC. And it's dead easy to like import um, 
things like um, sort of MP3 files and such like in there. Uh, and nothing- you play Groove Coaster? Oh yes, I have actually. I played I played it when it first came out on iOS. That's that's a really cool one because again, that's got quite a nice minimalist presentation. Um, that is one where you kind of need to recognize um, the, the musical aspects of the songs, particularly on the more difficult levels and songs. But it's got such a lovely presentation to it. You feel like you're going on a real journey through the music and that. I haven't played the more recent Steam release of that. But I, I spent a lot of hours on the original iOS version of that one. There's some really cool music in there as well. Um, what else? There was one other I wanted to bring up. What was it? Uh, oh, Audio Surf. You come across that before? I'm familiar with it. I haven't played it. Yeah, audio. Uh, I, I can see it like in yeah. my head. <laughs> yeah. So, so Audio Surf is kind of kind of a weird one because it's sort of superficially it resembles stuff like guitar here and rock band which i just realized we haven't really mentioned at all but um i was just thinking about that yeah um superficially it resembles guitar here and rock band in that you've got a sort of highway of notes that are coming down towards you but in terms of mechanics it's actually more like a puzzle game um in that um it's, it's closest comparison is probably clacks because you're you're collecting various colored uh, colored tiles and dropping them down into bins below you and sort of making lines and stacks and things like that um, but the thing is the the order in which these tiles and things come out is is according to the music so again like in beat hazard if you're playing a more energetic piece of music you will have a more sort of undulating twisting turning roller coaster with lots of um lots of different blocks to collect and avoid in some cases as if you're playing something a bit calmer uh you will have an easier time of it and that's this looks cool as hell yeah I'm watching video footage of it now yeah it's a great game it's it's quite difficult to get your head around to begin with but um you have to kind of you, you have to kind of almost discount the the music game part of it in some respects and think of it more of a, more of a, as a, a a puzzle game or a game about dodging things Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's really a music cool. adapting puzzle racer. Yes, is <laughs> a description on Steam. <laughs> but yeah, that that is that is a really cool game. It's got an absolutely beautiful aesthetic to it. It's got a bunch of different sort of filters you can apply to that as well. So you can sort of really jack up the psychedelic color side of things if you want to, or you can have a fairly minimalist vector style experience. That's um, really cool to me too. The extent to which these kind of visuals usually go hand in hand with audio games. Yeah. I don't yeah. know why. It's just like always the direction they go in. I think it's I think it's to do with sort of how the genre has kind of evolved and how the relationship between music and computer visuals has evolved over time as well. Yeah. Um, because um, if if we if we look back to sort of the eight and sixteen bit era, one person who was very much into exploring this side of things uh, was Jeff Minter. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Um, so so Jeff Minter is probably most well-known for his weird games involving fluffy animals these days, but uh, one of his most sort of defining and influential things that he did back in the 80s and 90s was he did a series of what he called uh, light synthesizers. Uh, so the first one was called Color Space, uh, and then he moved on to, uh, there was Tripatron on the ST and Amiga. Um, and what these were... They were they were basically software toys. So you in color space, uh, you would have a blank screen. You'd move your joystick around to move a cursor. You'd press the button on the joystick, and that would sort of summon 
just bits of color on the screen you can move them around you can make patterns it was like a sort of digital kaleidoscope in a lot of ways and then there were various functions in there that would allow you to sort of customize the color palette that was being used um, sort of change the way that they cycled around add sort of strobing and flashing effects and all sorts um, and one of the reasons that he designed that originally was because he was very interested in in sort of um, 60s psychedelic music and uh, prog rock and that sort of thing. So he's, he's a big Pink Floyd fan, for example. So one of the reasons he, he created these pieces of uh, the, these pieces of software was as a means of complementing the music that he liked. So mm. Color Space and Tripatron weren't really designed to just be used by themselves. They were designed to um, be almost a piece of performance art that someone would have up on a big screen while a band was performing or while they were DJing or something like that. Um, and that kind of developed over time so he worked with uh someone i've forgotten the name of he did a whole music video called mirac the video that was this glorious piece of sort of prog rock synth thing about an android discovering himself and crash landing on an ice planet and that sort of thing that was really cool um but then he also worked on the i can't remember if it was the original xbox or the xbox 360 but the basically the the visualizer in the music player for one of those consoles was his work oh uh, okay uh, and that was that was an early example of a music visualizer which is something we take for granted in our music software these days i, I don't know if that was actually the first one or not uh, offhand without looking it up but it was certainly an early example of that that became very very influential and so now we see it in stuff like itunes we see it in windows media player we see it in on our phones that sort of thing that that means of having this sort of abstract presentation responding to music using waveforms and that sort of thing and that that is sort of where this this kind of minimalist aesthetic for a lot of music games has come from i think it's built out of that original sort of light synthesizer thing that the the, the minter came up with in the first place um there was a really neat one built into wild arms 2 <laughs> really <laughs> <laughs> Like if you if you didn't uh, touch Wild Arms two for like twenty minutes, um, it would kick into a music visualizer where it would, it would only play the theme from Wild Arms one. Yeah, and but there was a unique visualizer that was dominoes that would fall and like colors would shift and like the trail the dominoes would follow was affected by the music. Oh, that's amazing! <laughs> and 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 that was just in there. Yeah. Like, if you just didn't touch the game, it would kick into that screensaver. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. I'm going to have to look that up afterwards. Yeah, that's that's really cool, though. Um, yeah, so I, th I think for a long time now, there's been sort of a, a very strong association between uh, music and sort of various ways of being creative with games. So it doesn't have to be um, like a direct rhythm game or anything like that, but... It's, it's clear that there's a lot of people over the years who have been fascinated with this connection that we make between sound and visuals. I mean, there's, there's even a word for it, isn't it? It's synesthesia, isn't it? Which is sort yeah. of connecting. There's a game, Synesthete. Have you ever played Synesthete? I haven't, no. It's awesome. What's that it on? Was a, it's just PC. It was oh, an okay. indie game yeah. that was, um, it was actually made by students. Yeah. And it, it was one of the first, like, indie games to really gain, like, popular traction in the games press when, like, that was just kind of becoming a thing. Yeah. Like, Cine like Synesthete was a, a big thing when, um, like, Cave Story was also becoming a big thing, like, originally. Um, and these, these students had won, like, major awards for this game. Okay. And it's all, it's like, uh, 
like an overhead platformer and you're running around these environments and then you also like with one hand you have to move around the environments and like fight the enemies and then the other hand like the notes are tumbling down and you're like on the numerical keypad like tapping out the notes to like defend yourself from like the enemy shots but yeah Sinus feet it's really cool oh sweet <laughs> and the soundtrack's great obviously because it has to be it has to be game. yes yes absolutely I, yeah oh, we, i could talk about this subject all day to be honest but uh yeah i, th- I think like, I, I will draw a line here and say last one i will mention is that game the sound of that game reminds me a little bit of uh crypto the necrodancer oh yeah i haven't played that yet mm. i really want to it's really cool yeah so that that's a really interesting game in that it combines sort of the structure of a reasonably traditional uh top-down roguelike with rhythm games so in the standard mode for crypto the necrodancer you are moving around in a turn-based format uh but the 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 turns are based on the beats of the music rather than um you just moving when you feel like it so different uh areas of levels might have different pieces of music and different tempos different levels will have different styles of music different enemies will move in different rhythmic patterns that you need to recognize otherwise you you'll get hurt by them while you're trying to attack them and yeah that's that's a really interesting game and a really good use of music to make something other than a conventional rhythm game that is one of those games where an ear for music and rhythm does help, but you're, you're not tapping out complicated rhythms in that or anything. You're just sticking to the beat more than anything. But yeah, it, that aspect of it makes it a really addictive experience. So if uh, if anyone's not checked that out, it's, uh, I can highly recommend that. That's available on most platforms too. I think this, I think it just came out on the Switch. Too, yes, some enhancements. yes, yeah. So it, it was. I think it was PC originally. I think I originally played the beta of that version. And then they did PS4 Vita, I think. Um, and yeah, definitely the most recent one is Switch as well. So yeah, you can play that on pretty much anything. So, And I highly recommend you do. Cool. All right, any other games you want to mention for now? No, I think I covered everything I, I'm I'm very familiar with in this kind of side of things. Um, I, I would mention too, in the, um, in the vein of talking about games that are music-based... Or music influence, but not music games specifically. Um, you know, I remember mentioning a couple episodes ago um, that uh, Shining Resonance. Oh yes. Um, the combat is very heavy, heavily rhythmic, and a lot of people bounced off the combat in that because you're actually expected to memorize the timing of each character's. You, each character has unique timing, uh, kind of associated with the type of instrument they play. Yeah. And if you try to mash it with combos like a t- like it's a tales game, you'll fail at the combat. Like yeah. you have you have you have to memorize and understand each character's unique timing. Yeah. Um because and that all ties into the musical theme of the game. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of examples out there of stuff. Yeah, I was going to say um I, I know I said Crypt of the Necrodancer was the last one I was going to bring up, but uh, just quickly Shadow Hearts is very much like that as well. So yeah, sure. So Shadow Hearts combat isn't music based as such, but the the judgment ring system it uses where you have to um you have to press the button at certain times in order to successfully trigger an attack or get in a critical hit and so on that is all heavily based on rhythm so again mm-hmm. like like a rhythm game you are better off actually learning how that rhythm goes and how to do that without looking rather than actually paying attention to what's on the screen um and in fact there's even an option in shadow hearts to turn off the visual cues altogether so you can just um you can just do it by ear if you want to so yeah That's neat. yeah so yeah music permeates everything we do it seems yeah all right let's call that a day there 
Would you like to tell people where to find you online and give you money and such like? <laughs> <laughs> yes, please give me money. Um, yes, uh, you can find my artwork at mrgilderpixels.com, M-R-G-I-L-D-E-R-P-I-X-E-L-S, um, and you'll find links on there as well to my social media pages, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, etc. cetera. Uh, love to hear from you guys. I'm always working on something new. Cool. And you can find my articles uh, most days at mariogamer.net uh, or on YouTube. Uh, I've got various themed series of Let's Plays going at the moment. We've got Warriors Wednesday, where I'm playing Warriors Orochi. Uh, my new New Game Plus series, which I've started on Fridays. We're playing through post-game content of various games, beginning with Project Zero One. Uh, and Sunday Driving, where I look at various arcade races, currently Auto Modelista by Capcom. Um, you can check out my other projects as well. There's atari8z.wordpress.com and videopackgames.wordpress.com. There's links to both of those on mariogamer.net if you can't remember the addresses of those. Uh, check them out, please. Thanks. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening and or watching, everybody, and we shall see you again next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>